You're now listening to the sound of us following an incredibly predictable formula to satisfying results. But did Ghostbusters Afterlife do the same? Well, that's what we're here to discuss. That's what we're here to discuss. Because for some reason, inexplicable even to us, we saw the movie Ghostbusters colon Afterlife, comma Dawn of Justice. And we're going to litigate it and the decline of Western civilization. I'm just guessing we're going to litigate the decline of Western civilization because I don't know how you talk about this movie without litigating the decline of... Uh, I'm showing my hand early. Maybe this movie was awesome. Hey, let me... Nah. Speaking of awesome, let's introduce some characters. Mm. And I'm sure their arcs will definitely go somewhere. All right. All right. Shut up, Nathan. Let's just introduce <laughs> the guys and do the show. All right. We've got... Ben Solzer, preacher who's a teacher of cinema, right there. Here I am. How you doing, Ben? Oh, I'm Nathan, right. your humble and obedient host. You are Nathan. You're listening to Sanity at the Movies. Like humble, humble and obedient, obedient ghost. <laughs> That's right. Who are you going to call me? Hey. <laughs> I'll call you a ghost, Buster. <laughs> oh. Are you threatening to kill me? Busted. No. <laughs> yeah, you're busted. Uh, if you kill me, please. I'd just like to state right now, if anyone kills me, you are not allowed to use my CGI likeness in anything. You better get that in writing, buddy. No, I'm just, I trust my fans to burn down Benjamin J. Solzer's house after he tries to use my CGI likeness in route. Boy, all right. Ben, why don't you introduce the other guy, the third guy, the linchpin that holds the whole podcast together? I will do it. He is Pastor Jacob Mensel, the pastor who's a master of cinema? Yeah, I think is so. Is that what we said? Probably. Probably. Okay. That's what we're saying. That's what we're going with. Ghostbusters Afterlife, guys. Mm. What baggage do you have with the franchise, the, the multimedia franchise, I guess it, we're calling it now, that is Ghostbusters? Jake? I grew up with Ghostbusters. I grew up with the original. I grew up with Ghostbusters 2. I remember all of the cool stuff. Like, I have pretty vivid memories of Ghostbusters 2, 2 coming out and all of the stuff about it, all of the, like, cups and toys and all the things. And I had a proton pack and I had a jumpsuit and I had a Slimer puppet thing. Mm-hmm. Cool. That was, like, stick your hand in the back and be Slimer. And uh-huh. I had Ecto-1 and... I had a whole bunch of the things. So weird that Slimer doesn't get a cameo. Yeah. It, why they wanted to replace Slimer with Muncher and not give us even a Slimer cameo, even in the in the two like, one of the two post credit scenes. Yeah, at the very least, have Slimer come out of the ghost containment facility at the very end. But uh, also, just Onion Head, I think his name is. I know, I know, but the world knows Onion Head as Slimer. Slimer, that's right. And so they should. Yeah. So, I mean, I had a trap. I had all the like it was like an air pump trap thing. So you push it and it pushed the air through and opened up the trap. I had all the things. My brother and I had all the things, and I watched the cartoon show. Even I have memories of the cartoon show. I think we had at least one monster that was probably a cameo from the cartoon show when we had the much too short monsters are now all over the place scene. So I have a lot of fondness and nostalgia for a Ghostbusters franchise that I did not understand as a kid for what it actually was. 
and came to understand it later as an adult as the tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic, kind of mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) thing that it actually was later and still kind of like. So, I don't know. So, you are the primo audience for this movie. You are perfect because you actually remember Ghostbusters as a really exciting adventure film. I remember it as an exciting, fun thing. Ghostbusters 2, I would have said, much like uh, as a kid, Last Crusade or Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi are your favorite uh, franchise films and Indiana Jones and Star Wars as a kid. Ghostbusters 2 was my favorite as a kid. And I I still kind of want to stand by Ghostbusters 2 as an enjoyable, fun, dopey, whatever it is. It doesn't quite have the magic of the first one. But I I don't know. I, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing, I guess. Or a sucker for nostalgia. I, when did Ghostbusters 2 come out? I want to say 89. Yeah, so my parents were still together. Yeah. So that's part of it too that I don't want to write off. But also, it, it still represents a part of my whole childhood before my parents divorced, I think too. So it's got probably some hooks in me that way too. Well, I also just, Ghostbusters 2 is a better kids film in a lot of ways. It probably has vulgar stuff that I don't remember. But, it does. But the, what's the name of the painting? Vigo. Yeah, Vigo the Carpathian is a fun, creepy villain. Whereas the first one is more like, Dan Aykroyd's really into the occult. Right. But Vigo the Carpathian's like, ooh, spooky painting. And then the Statue of Liberty thing, which is pretty lame, is fun for a kid. Although, you just can't beat the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. You can't beat Stay Puft. But but what you can, how you can beat it for a kid is have Bill Murray actually hamming it up Mm. with a microphone, you know, as the Statue of Liberty is... You know, and have the the Dock Harbor guys, you know, who are going to see the Titanic come in, also see the Statue of Liberty walk by and stuff like that. Yeah, you're making me want to go back to it. Lady Liberty is going to bust a hole in the top of the slime egg that covers the... Yeah, it's too bad love saves the day in that movie, though. I don't think love should ever save the day in any Ghostbusters movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it, okay, lo- yeah. love has now saved the day in more movies in the franchise than it hasn't saved the day, but... Yeah. I really think we need to just be like, ah, let's. It's also got some of the creepiest jump scares. It's it, for it being more kid-ish. Like once you get down into the subway and have the subway jump scares, that's like it's about as gross and creepy as a scene as you could imagine in any of it. Like it's it outdoes Indiana Jones's skeleton jump scare scenes. Yeah, the average kid, my memory is that the average kid thought that Ghostbusters Two was the scary one. And the average adult was like, eh, maybe we shouldn't turn on Ghostbusters 2. But I think that both the kid and the adult were actually wrong because Ghostbusters 1 has a pretty famous vulgar scene that you just can't escape. I mean, you can fast forward it, but it's it's there in the movie and very kid unfriendly. Yep. And the demonic stuff is just more demonic feeling. Well, and then you have also Dana Barrett's Possessed. Yeah. Right. You have the Keymaster and all that stuff. Yeah. And then you have, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have her like in that slinky gown and hovering over the bed, basically doing. Yes. Yeah. You know, the more you talk about it, the more I am a little embarrassed to own how much I affection I have for this uh, franchise. Well, that's just the, that's the reality of it. mm -hmm. So. You grew up with it. I mean, these things happen. Ben, what's your baggage with Ghostbusters. I never saw it until I was a teenager. Never seen Ghostbusters 2. So I saw Ghostbusters 1. Liked it okay. 
didn't like I I think I was uncomfortable with uh, sexual humor and never thought about it again. You are a huge fan, though. You'll never stop telling me and Jake how much you love the Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, or whatever. Ghostbusters that, Reborn. Ghostbusters 2016. That's, Man, that's a masterpiece. That's like one of your favorite films. I think it's like Amazing Spider-Man mm-hmm. to Ghostbusters 2016. Those are, well, I think those are what I recall you I telling me is that you really appreciated the nuances of Chris Hemsworth's performance in that film. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, he's always nuanced, but in that movie, oh, yeah. <laughs> let me tell you, there's, it's almost like he's not even there. There's only nuance there Yeah, where he should be. Chris Hemsworth is weight in gold. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In terms of the things he brings to that movie. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, that's all. So, I had no expectations of almost anything coming to this movie. Well, Ghostbusters, for me... I never saw that one, by yeah, the way, I, yeah. just so the record. Nope. I'm so glad Likewise. you cleared that up. I thought I was like, it sounds like Jake has seen it. We could clarify right now, but I don't want to embarrass Jake <laughs> in front of our dear listeners, so I'm not going to do it. So I'm glad you took the initiative. Yeah, I never, never bothered with that. Yeah, one. no, it looks stupid, and also Didn't feminism mo- sucks. And feminism Paul, sucks, ruins everything. Lesbo, chic, ruins everything. Uh, and, that chick. Oh, man, I can't stand yeah. her. The... the um. Not Kristen Wiig. She's fine. Melissa McCarthy can be funny, but the the zany Saturday Night Live chick. Yeah. She plays the Spangler role, I think. I really don't like her at all. Don't know who. And I forget what her name is. She's the blonde. She's mm. the thin blonde. Yep. She's not the mm. black lady and she's not the two that whose names I know. But my memory. So Ghostbusters is one of a handful of films that I think of as quintessentially a dad movie. Because my dad loved Ghostbusters and he felt bad about it. Like he, there was the scene that you had to fast forward and my dad really hated anything with the smack of the demonic, but he just thought Bill Murray was so funny. And so there were just certain things, you know, my dad wasn't big on like violent movies and stuff, but there were just a few things that got grandfathered in as I think every family has. Mm-hmm. There were a few things that got grandfathered in. And so Mad Max was one of them. I don't know why Mad Max just tickled my dad's funny bone too. <laughs> like the, just the over the top, I'm going to throw a razor boomerang and then the bad guy's going to catch it and his fingers are going to get cut off. Just like all the kind of ridiculousness of Mad Max is kind of touched some part of my dad's heart somehow for some reason, as it does many a dad. And Ghostbusters, like he just thought Bill Murray was so funny. And so I just have, like, I could just picture my dad sitting on the couch laughing and laughing, like at, at Ghostbusters and the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. It's a pretty sweet memory, actually. But I really think of that as a dad movie. And then the, a movie that my dad took me to see that I associate with Ghostbusters because he also he loved it and it's a similar formula is Men in Black. And he really thought that that movie was funny. And I thought that that movie was funny. And as I've said many times, probably on this podcast, but certainly in real life, I've said it, IRL, Men in Black, I think, is the superior, high-concept, wisecracking guys fighting some kind of preternatural or supernatural Less like menace. objectionable, too, isn't it, if memory serves? Or am I yeah, it's, it's got some... It's got some stuff. Not entirely unobjectionable, but yeah. nothing on the level with the scene. Yeah. From Ghostbusters. Yeah, I just can't remember Men in Black that well. Yeah, I think I think two fast forwardable scenes in Ghostbusters and some illusions that could pass over. Like it's just I don't know. Yeah, I mean the coroner ladies can be is a little obnoxious. Right. Uh, 
that whole scene. That's part of what I was thinking of. Yeah. But there's not, I mean, I'm not claiming Men in Black is like wholesome, but compared to Ghostbusters, it is, I think. There's just, I actually just watched in preparation for this, I watched an interview with John, where Johnny Carson was interviewing Aykroyd. And Aykroyd was like, yeah, Ghostbusters, it's our new family picture. Bring the whole... And it's just like, oh, that's what they thought a family picture was back in 1984. Mm-hmm. So, I sort of... I've, I, Jake here is... Jake, I think we could say, was exci- actually the most excited about this movie. I, I was... I had hyped myself up to the point that I was convinced... Well, I don't know how actual... I don't think I was actually convinced. You had to lean into it because I went the opposite direction. Yeah, and said, so they're going to have CGI hair of Ramos and it's going to suck and we're going to hate and it. And we're going to hate it all. So I said, it. I quickly imagined the best possible version of how all that could play out in my mind and said, it's going to be the best movie of the year. It's going to surprise us all. It's going to dethrone No Time to Die. And Spider-Man's not going to touch it for heart. And... And you had a couple good good things in your corner for, for that argument. Number one, Jason Reitman, talented filmmaker. Talented what, indie filmmaker who's never, hadn't sold out by and large coming into this. Boy, did he sell out in this oh one. Oh my goodness. <laughs> to Walmart of all places. <laughs> oh, There's a scene where this movie just dies, where they just say, we gave up and we no longer wish to make a film. And it is a scene where Paul Rudd, goes through one we'll talk about it we'll get to it but uh, what were we talking about oh yeah you were saying you're you were so jason reitman was like oh this is interesting and the legacy and of pro- he had refused and they'd come to him multiple times yeah and- he's got this nice narrative that he says in interviews like his dad ivan right if you don't know ivan reitman directed ghostbusters big comedy director in the 80s jason's like lived with it his whole life he's a little boy on the ghostbusters set goofing off with bill murray and everything like he can remember he has those stories right but his whole life like you know he's an indie comedy guy he's coming up hey and and columbia is trying to put together their new ghostbusters franchise he's kind of an obvious pick for it but he's just no 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 i don't want to do it and then harold dies and he gets the idea like oh this is how we can do it i can process i can use this movie to process my own grief about my father's absence being out there making movies and, and ignoring me through all of this and through the death of Harold Ramis and the death of Eon as a character. And you've got this filmmaker who knows how to make a comedy who knows how to have a story with heart. Right. And then you have this property that's beloved and has all kinds of opportunity to go any number of directions with that kind of a story. And then you look at some of the cinematography from the trailers and it's like, okay, now just like you would say, if you're going to, like when we were talking about Solo, the way to do Solo is not to try to make a Star Wars movie, but to try to make an Indiana Jones movie. Right. If you're going to have somebody step into Harrison Ford's role, the way to help sell that is to actually try to make an Indiana Jones movie so that as much of it feels iconic Harrison Ford as possible and melds it all. So if you're going back to a 1980s property, even though it's not a Spielberg property and you're trying to instill some magic it or, or, or recapture some of the magic of people who would have seen that movie as a kid, then what you do is you try to make a Spielberg movie with the Ghostbusters IP. I think that's a smart angle. That's what everything about the trailers was selling to you was I took the Ghostbusters IP, and 
I made a Spielberg movie out of it. And you can trust me, it's going to be funny. It's going to it's going to have more heart than the other ones because that's what we want with some nostalgia. We, we're all here for as much nostalgia bait as anything else. This is going to be funny and it's going to be irreverent in its own ways, but it's also going to have some heart. And part of how we're going to communicate that is look at these shots. Don't they feel Spielberg? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, all right, we've got a director that's smart, that stayed indie or reasonably smart. He right. stayed indie. He's got a good father line on all of this property. The reluctance to take up the big budget blockbuster, you know, mantle of his own father. Harold Ramis is dead. Mm-hmm. All of the pieces are there to tell a really fun, funny, cool, irreverent, but at the end of the day, a lot of heart kind of film that resonates in the right ways with the, the 1980s, but also feels like it's a story for today. Right. And so, you know, you can talk yourself in all, all kinds of good ways of doing that or all kinds of good ways of how that would play out. And I sure as heck did. Well, and you can argue why make it – because it's obviously in the trailers. This is going to be like a Spielberg-y kind of Amblin adventure film. And you could argue, oh, don't do that. The original is an irreverent comedy. Where's the irreverent comedy? But it's actually smart. It's smart because you're making a sequel – to the way that six-year-old Jake felt when he saw the original exactly. Ghostbusters, yep. as opposed to what the original Ghostbusters actually is, right? which has nothing to do or not With much. how to, I felt when I was five. But it's what, it's what we've always said, I think sort of in defense, not in defense, but just descriptively as it's true and right that, that, that they have amped up the scariness and the violence of the new Star Wars movies because they're actually making a sequel to the way that a five-year-old felt seeing mm-hmm. Star Wars, but now we're all in our 30s, which means we need darker villains in order to evoke, you know, we can't just have a, a guy in a robot suit walk out in a hallway and feel quite the same way. So we have to amp it up somehow. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a choice that you make for those reasons. You can, you can argue with it being the right choice, but it, there's a defense for it. Yeah, I think there's a defense for it. Mm-hmm. And I actually think... One of the things I want to get to, and I won't get to it just just now, but one of the things that this movie made me do is, is actually appreciate Force Awakens. I think Force Awakens makes a lot of right choices, actually, where this movie makes choices that are just horrible bummers. But Well, this, this movie tries to do everything from The Force Awakens to The Rise of Skywalker in one movie. And yuck. Yuck. What's that? Are we still getting the... Is it your fan? I think it might be the fan. Okay. Yeah, these this microphone's just better. Okay. But that fan ed- edits out nicely, actually. Yeah, it does try to do it, and and then it has these long extended sequences that, well, we'll get to them. <laughs> yes, it does have long extended sequences that we'll get to. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Ghostbusters 1984, though, because I don't think we're actually going to... I mean, maybe one day we'll just do Ghostbusters 1984, yeah. but I want to talk about that movie and give actually a little context for that movie because I think it occupies a really interesting place in Hollywood history and you have to understand what that movie did and what that movie was in order to understand this one. And I think in order to understand why it's so dumb that they keep trying to franchise this hmm. property. And I want to talk about Bill Murray too, because he is the shadow that sort of hangs over this movie that's not the metaphor i want he's the he's the elephant in the well harold, harold ramus is one elephant he's in the, the room. pixie dust yeah in 1984's ghostbusters right and he just is and part of 
I know that we're getting ready to talk about this, but part of what's awesome about that movie is go, especially going back to it or just looking back on it as an adult is how stupid everybody thought that movie was in the first place mm-hmm. and how Bill Murray was not pretending. It's just well, let me talk hilarious. About, let me talk about <laughs> what Bill Murray does because Bill Murray fascinates me. I think he fascinates everybody. He, everybody likes to share and read the articles where it's like, Bill Murray came up behind me and put his hands over my eyes. And then I turned and I saw it was Bill Murray. And he said, they'll never believe you and winked and walked away. You know, he has this kind of, <laughs> yeah. he has this legend about him and people just, I mean, I don't think that I've, I, I could, I defy you to name another actor who is as universally beloved, who's not Tom Hanks or Jimmy Stewart. I mean, nobody. Would dis- have been Will Smith until the last year or two. <laughs> yeah. Will Smith has mismanaged his career, but Everybody. And Bill Murray, I don't know that he's ever made a movie that I would say is just a stone cold classic. Maybe Groundhog Day, probably Groundhog Day. But what about Bob? Yeah. What about Bob is a perfect little comedy. It's not very I've ambitious, though. It. It's You should see it. It's funny. I mean, if you want to see Bill Murray just torture Richard Dreyfuss for two hours, which I think we all do, then <laughs> that's, that's the movie. <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss plays a pompous ass and Bill Murray plays the annoying guy that annoys Richard Dreyfuss, which is perfect. Yeah, it's funny. But I mean, we could probably name half a dozen Bill Murray movies that are that would be in contention for classic, but mm-hmm. Royal Tenenbaums, maybe, although that's not really a Bill Murray movie. Uh, I don't know. Scrooge. Scrooge stinks. <laughs> <laughs> I hate Scrooge. What a, what a bad movie. Uh, okay. I promise this is going to lead right up to Bill Murray. I want to talk about a lady named Viola Spolin. She wrote a book called Improvisation for the Theater, which created improv, modern improv, like what you see on or what everybody kind of thinks of as like the whose line is it anyway type stuff, the little improv games. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So she wrote a book called Improvisation for the Theater and... Her son started an improv company and basically created modern improv. And that was in Chicago. And it was called Second City. And out of Second City comes Alan Alda, Alan Arkin, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, Gilead Radner, John Candy, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Chris Farley, Tim Meadows, Colin Mockery, Ryan Stiles, Mike Myers, Nia Vardalos, the My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Steve Carell, Jordan Peele, Tim of Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Stephen Colbert, Kate McKinnon. That's her name. Before they were on Saturday Night Live. They were at Second City. Second City. And Second City is an improv troupe. And it basically invented. So this lady wrote a book with these improv exercises. And they weren't necessarily geared for comedy. They were just these little exercises that you could do basically to get yourself in the moment and to get out of the way. What what her, her big philosophy was anyone can improv on stage. You don't have to be an inspired performer. What you have to do, though, is just be willing to channel yourself purely and sort of not get in your way, not be thinking ahead like to what I want to do. If you see like a bad improv or if you see people make fun of improv, like there's an episode of The Office. I'm not a big Office fan, but there's an episode of The Office where Steve Carell's dumb character goes to do improv and he, and the way that they mock him is by have him having him make fun of he's like trying to plan it out and think about the cool things he's going to do ahead of time and then he keeps pulling a gun on all the other characters 
and, and ruining the scenes. <laughs> I've seen that episode. Yeah, it's it, actually pretty funny. It's, it's funny, and it's because it's all about him, and it's all about what he wants to do, and he's in his head about it, and that's bad improv. Good improv is you just let yourself go, and you're just in the scene, and you just let yourself be pure, and you let the things come out that would come out. And that's that's what all the performers that I've just named have been trained in. And what was the name of the book again? Improvisation for the Theater by Viola Spolin. And her son, Paul Sills, founded Second City. And I think you can trace all modern comedy basically to the influence of Saturday Night Live, the influence of Monty Python, and the influence of that book and that style. I mean, just like lots of things coalesced around the 50s and 60s, all that sort of coalesced in the 50s and 60s. And I'm going to just make a huge, broad generalization that's only sort of true, but it it gets at what I'm talking about. If you look at old comedy, you know, Henny Youngman, you know, women are crazy these days. Take my wife, please. That that kind of stuff. It's very presentational. It's performer over here, audience over here. Performer is performing a thing. Audience is receiving that thing. There's just a two one-to-one relationship. That's broadly speaking, old comedy. There's Charlie Chaplin. He's doing a thing. He's falling over. We're laughing at Charlie Chaplin. New comedy, this style of comedy is much more of a dialogue between the audience and the performer. It's like the difference between a bad preacher and a good preacher. So a bad pastor gets up and presents information about the Bible. Here it is. Here's some theology that you all should believe. A good preacher is in conversation with his congregation. He knows them. And it's not that he's necessarily asking them questions and having them answer back, although our, our pastor, Jake Menzel, who's right here, does do that a lot, and it's a, it can be a good technique. But he's in conversation with their fears, with their expectations, with the things that they bring. He's adjusting as he goes. He's adjusting. He's watching them. He's, he's, he's understanding, oh, I anticipated one thing, but I was wrong. And, right. You know, I, I was, yeah. I anticipated this would hit the, my congregation this way, and it feels like it's hitting them a different way because I'm suddenly remembering this thing or whatever. Yeah, or, oh, and so if he's in Timbuktu, he's going to do it differently than if he's in Florida, than if he's in India. It's all about, yeah. it's not that the truth is subjective, but it's the way that he brings the truth changes a little bit based on what the audience, or what the congregation is giving him. Well, I think modern comedy is similar And it starts with Monty Python, as so many things do. I mean, Monty Python is not just, we're here, we're presenting a thing, and you are responding to the thing. I mean, it does do that, but it also does, we're presenting a thing, and it's funny precisely because you're sitting next to your dad, and he doesn't think it's funny. And now we've given you a catchphrase, which you can take to the school, and some of your friends will know it, and some of your friends will, will not know it. And we're all in a conversation together. And actually, it's not even that what we just did was funny, but it's funny because it wasn't funny. There's just all these different layers between. It's funny because we're all part of youth culture because we're speaking to you. There's just, there's a relationship. I mean, Monty Python, you don't think of it as being relational. It's very presentational in its style. 
But in terms of the expectations and the kind of, I'm avoiding this word, but the kind of metatextual. It's just, I mean, Saturday Night Live is a is a cheap and watered down version of the same precisely. thing. But it, it, it is the the fact that if you've ever watched any of these shows, whether it was old, whether it was Saturday Night Live or any Monty Python anything or old Mad TV or In Living Color or whatever, the fun of it and the funny of it, the moments, the things that you think about as being funny, or even some of the Lorne Michaels uh, movies that are built out of Saturday Night Live characters. Wayne's you know, World, Tommy Boy, stuff like that. Yeah, Wayne's World, Tommy Boy, any Adam Sandler movie. What's funny is not the thing in and of itself. It's getting the laughs, drawing the lines, using the catchphrases having that in common with somebody else in a different context. So you go see it with your buddies or whatever, and then you can laugh about it and keep rehearsing the things, you know, Sunday morning or Monday at school, you can talk about Saturday Night Live and it's way funnier to talk about it than it was sitting and watching it. Yeah. And so in that sense, modern comedy is always in dialogue with you as an audience where Oliver and Hardy, not so much in dialogue with you. They're just like, we are professionals doing a job and you're if you've paid, then you laugh. That's the transaction. End of story. Obviously, I'm broadly generalizing hugely. The Marx Brothers are a great example of comedians who they have a relationship and they're ahead of the curve in terms of doing And you could name things on both sides of the equation that don't fit this simplistic. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to understand a lot of modern comedy as being very meta and very in dialogue with its audience. And it explains... The success of somebody like Jon Stewart or the people that are downstream of Jon Stewart or Stephen Colbert these days, he'll just get on and he won't have jokes. He'll just be like, hey, we all agree that Donald Trump is a terrible president, right? <laughs> and then everybody laughs and there's no, there's no joke, but there is a shared feeling. There is a relationship that we all want. There is, there is like a, a thing that we can enter into and it's just very different. And Monty Python helped pioneer that. And then Saturday Night Live did the kind of watered down, but it was very provocative for American television when you come. I mean, it's why I would say a lot of this stuff actually doesn't work. Like your parents kind of remember it fondly if they grew up with old Saturday Night Live. But you watch like a John Belushi skit now and it's like, what? What is this? Why why did people think Chevy Chase was funny? Like this, yeah. this is this is like supposed to be revolutionary stuff, and it seems. Why is Animal House so great? Well, yeah, Animal House is a great example, and the reason Animal House is so beloved by a certain generation is because it was in conversation with that generation, and it was saying, "Hey, authority sucks, right?" And college experience is like this, and you all remember this, and you all wanted to lose your virginity in this way, and wouldn't it be fun if you could just be like John Belushi? And don't you know John Belushi? And isn't John Belushi actually you? And there's like all this. All these layers of stuff happening where you watch the great, you know, Harold Lloyd's The Freshman where he goes to college and it's just like, here's a boy, he's going to college, some funny things are happening to him. So, all of that to explain broadly modern comedy and I think to sort of begin to get at some sort of thesis statement about Bill Murray. Because I love Bill Murray just like anyone, but I always wonder why I love Bill Murray. I'm like, there's nothing intrinsically great about this guy except for that he's great there's this like what is he doing you can never catch him doing anything what is he doing and i think the answer is more than almost any star that you could name this is this is at least my thesis statement maybe i'm crazy but i'm going to start here i think bill murray 
he barely seems like he's in conversation with the movie. Like he barely seems like he wants to play a character. It barely seems like he wants to be there oftentimes, but boy, he is in conversation with you as an audience member. And and so like the famous opening scene of Ghostbusters is a good example. You barely buy the conceit that he's a college professor, that he's Peter Vankman, that, but the fact that he's just sort of talking to you, like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if you could get this cute co-ed and you could zap this other guy? Don't, don't we all hate like everyone <laughs> and don't we all want to sleep with and college? And, and with if cute you were co-eds? in my position, wouldn't you do the same thing? Wouldn't right. you angle to. And he's, he's, he's a genius at it and you don't really catch it. It's not like he turns to the camera and arches his eyebrow like Groucho Marx style, but he might as well. It's that same energy where he's marveling to us that he's getting away with what he's getting away with. And we appreciate it. And we're in on the joke and the co-ed's not in on the joke. And the guy that's getting zapped certainly isn't in on the joke, but we're all in on the joke with Bill Murray. And I think that's what people love about Bill Murray to this day. You see him in interviews or you watch his movies and it could even be a more serious movie, but you just like the guy. He just, he, you know, if you think about the families in your church or the people that you know that are just likable and have a connection with you, sometimes whole families will be like, you know, you'll just say that's a likable family. The, the weird thing about Bill Murray is he's likable on screen, but I don't think that anybody thinks I would like this man in real per- in real life, do right. they? Like, he's the uncle that would make you uncomfortable or that you would just like... Well, the one thing that I think we all know is that he's lecherous. And I mean, that's part of his persona. Oh, really? And I don't know anything except what I hear about him showing up at people's houses and parties and being being their best friend for two hours and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the image that he wants, but he's also never really downplayed his old, his 80s movie image, which is, I'm a bad, like, I'm going to get, the, I'm going to zap the other guy. I'm going to get the co-ed. You, you know, I mean, that Peter Venkman is Bill Murray and it's the persona that he's always yeah, You know, like he's not interested in running Ghostbusters. He's just interested in making money and sleeping with, uh, I don't know why I remember her character, but Dana Barrett, Dana Barrett. You know, the, you know, Sigourney Weaver character. Like he, he, he doesn't even want to be there. And, and you understand that the real Bill Murray didn't really want to be there either, but just wanted to do coke and get hot girls and, and stuff like that. And I don't know. It's just interesting. I remember like he's the number one guy I'd say that I remember my dad loving. And my parents loving. And to this day, if I say to my mom, you know, oh, we just recorded a Ghostbusters, she might well say something about, oh, Bill Murray, he's so funny. Or, I mean, it's just I, short of Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Rogers, or Tom Hanks, you, huh. you cannot name somebody who's more universally beloved by everybody. But unlike those people, there's no reason why we should love him. I think this is what you were starting to get at, Jake. Like, he doesn't seem like a nice guy. Doesn't seem like a nice guy. Doesn't he doesn't play like a nice guy, guy in his movies, actually. Nope, he plays a pretty nasty guy in most of his movies. Right. And you you wouldn't expect that if you went up to him on the street and asked you for, like, if he was in a good mood, maybe he'd do something whimsical. But if you hit him at the wrong moment, there's no guarantee that he wouldn't just be nasty to you if you asked him for an autograph or saw him. Like, I would not want to meet Bill Murray, I don't think. So I once watched I watched part of a documentary on an airplane about Bill Murray and his meetings with all these people, and it was kind of a tedious documentary because the point was, man, Bill Murray is so awesome, and I got to meet Bill Murray, and I talked to Bill Murray, and Bill Murray showed up in my house, you know, right. that kind of thing. But 
it was interesting that everyone in that documentary was like, he was just easy to be around, just chill. Mm -hmm. Actually interested in me with the person as a person. We talked, we connected, he left. None of it was weird. None of it, he was like, he didn't mind being a celebrity. Yeah. So, I, I, I don't know entirely. I wonder if he changed some. I wonder if he does like people. I wonder which part is just narcissism. I have no idea. This, this documentary gave me no grid for assessing that. I mean, I've spent my whole life trying to solve the mystery of Bill Murray. That's not the main thing that I've done with my it's life. Principal thing should, that Nathan is. I mean, basically, if you fund Warren Media, you fund Nathan's investigation into the character right. of Bill Murray. I like Egon Spangler. I'm going to rent a dirt farm and just study Bill Murray for the rest of my life and this try and stop him from bringing the apocalypse. It's a farm. It's a trap. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Brilliant stuff. I've. I mean, I just. I think he's pretty fascinating because I get why people like Mr. Rogers. I, I mean, I do also get why people like Bill Murray. I, I like Bill Murray too, but I'm like, what are we all like and why? And, and yes, he's adopted this kind of Zen clown thing now. Yeah. Where, and you hear all these stories, but I'm like, I don't believe for a second that he's sincere about that. I believe that's the image that he wants, but I believe that he has a whimsical sense of humor and he likes to do those things. But do I believe that Bill Murray is a nice guy? No, I believe he might be fun to hang out with if you caught him at the right moment. You know, when he was fun was in uh, Space Jam. Yeah. Ivan Reitman. He's pretty likable in that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, I mean, Bill Murray saved Space Jam as far as, I mean, the only reason I'd ever want to go back to Space Jam, I think is. Could have been me. Let's go Bulls. Get that little signature Bill Murray cracking the voice right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I So I found some random interview. And it, 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 this lady got randomly picked up by M Bill Murray and given a bear hug. Mm -hmm. When she saw him, she was like, oh, my, Bill Murray, my name is this. And then he gives her a bear hug and goes off into the party or wherever they are. So, she talked to him on the phone and he said, quote, I'm not acting like this for the purpose of being exciting. I do it because it's fun. If there's life happening and you run from it, you're not doing the world a favor. You have to engage. It's almost sad that people are not expecting others to engage, that it's a surprise, and if it's someone they recognize, I guess it has an almost supernatural quality, but I've always been like this, end quote. So, anyway, th this is interesting to me. It seems like the kind of thing you should, that was from uh, an article in The Guardian mm -hmm. called, I'm Nothing But Compost, Bill Murray on Good Friends, Bad Bosses, and Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. People with personas and private lives, it's one of the most fascinating things to me. And Bill Murray seems like one of the best modern case studies of like, who is this guy really? And I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we'll ever know probably because he plays his cards pretty close to the chest and or vest. I never know whether which one is correct or whether they're both correct, but Jake's going to look Have, Haven't we litigated? <laughs> yes, we've definitely litigated this multiple times <laughs> on the podcast, but I never remember. All right, folks. I know you don't like tangents but this is an important tangent we are we are going to find out whether it's close to the jest or vest it's either one it's either one okay because you can hold cards ch close to either one and play them well let me tell very quickly one of the nastiest bill murray stories because it plays directly into the saga of ghostbusters and the saga of why i hate this film and why i think the ending of this film is evil Yep. Uh, which is the story of Bill Murray's relationship with Harold Ramis. To do that, I need to very quickly 
uh, let me just uh, close one tab by so I we talked about the state of 20th 21st century comedy. So that was important for this movie that doesn't have a laugh in it. We talked about Bill Murray a little bit. Let me talk about Sure it does. Who are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> Boo. You know what the dumbest thing was? I don't like I don't want to be condescending towards people and I it's okay. You know, if people like Dune for example, it's fine. I'm glad they enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it. But we sat behind some people that just fell for everything in this movie and we're yeah. like, it's... We sat in front of them, actually. Yeah. But I, I sat to the left of them. Yeah, there were people in this theater who were like, they just said it. They just said, who are you going to call? And it was hard for me not to dislike those people very much. I don't want to be yep. better than humanity. If you like being you, pandered to... <laughs> You want to know if there was a laugh in the movie, it was the moment where uh, J.K. Simmons' character gets ripped in half. Yeah. Although there again, if, that's a, if that was supposed to be a joke, there's a way to play that joke. Like, there's a way to set that up. Like, he's in, he's, here's this character who's going to be important. It's J.K. Simmons. Isn't that exciting? And he's got a thing. Oh, he's dead. Like, there's a way to actually do that. But they threw it away. They so threw it away that you didn't know whether it was intentional or whether we were even supposed to recognize that it was J.K. Simmons under the Colonel Sanders getup. Anyway. I didn't, actually. Yeah. I mean, J.K. Simmons is, got his Oscar for Juno, which is Jason Reitman's big film. But, uh, Ben, you look like a man with more Bill Murray research to share or no, something. No, I don't. I'm just – I'm sorry. I'm just mulling all this over. It's sparking a train in my mind. I don't yeah. know what Sparking to say. a train. Yeah, spark sparking a train. <laughs> you, guys, you guys know sparking that train? Yeah, don't cross the streams <laughs> of that train. <laughs> well, is the train going to come into the – Thought station where no. the conductor will verbalize it. I, it's it's an interesting article. What I what I what I was uh, quoting from. It's just Murray. I mean, the writer talks about his reputation as someone difficult to work with, right? And temperamental, as well as what he is now, right? And he maintains, ah, I never changed. Just whether or not people knew how to work with me. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's to me that's the kind of thing that a narcissist would say. I mean. I believe it. I mean, I, yeah, I believe it, but I believe that he's a narcissist. Yeah, I believe, or, or I could. If you want to say, hard. if you want to say, he's I believe that he gets along with some people and doesn't with others, and hasn't really changed all that much, and doesn't really care. Yeah, I, I believe and all that. That's a function of his narcissism too. Yeah, what I don't yeah. believe is that that's the function of some kind of higher consciousness. Yeah, Zen yeah, yeah. sort of Bill Murray. But that's that's what people. That's why I mean that was why I stopped watching that stupid documentary is because that's what people believed it. That he was, you know, right. he was an avatar for a higher spirit of love or something or flow or being in the moment or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Murray's just chill and he goes with it and everything comes to him because he doesn't care. He's got Don't that, you wish you were like that? Don't you wish you could be like that? Don't you wish more people in your life were like that? No, I don't. Don't you wish more celebrities were like that? It's okay for one Bill Murray to get away with it. But if everyone tried to do that, then the roads wouldn't run and the traffic lights wouldn't change and we wouldn't have policemen and. The world would be a a very sad, 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 sad place. So, what the movie that just came to my mind is the, the other character is Jimmy Stewart's character in Harvey. Mm -hmm. Just think if everyone were were like him and his yeah, puka. Yeah, which Harvey, me and my wife just watched it for the first time. Never seen it. I hate it. I think it's maybe just wicked. I don't. I don't know. Like it, it really wants to tell you that we should all be Harvey. Or we shouldn't, we shouldn't all be the imaginary bunny, but we should all just give ourselves to useless fantasies. And it basically does make the argument that we should all be Bill Murray. 
And it doesn't ask the question of what would happen to the roads, what would happen to crime, what would happen to society if we were all just allowed to be Bill Murray. Turn that off, Karen. The man's sick. Trust me. That's all I know, Farvey. It's uh, (laughs) seen in Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams, yeah. That that is a movie... We should watch soon because I think you put it in conversation with this conversation. You get some interesting stuff. Yeah. Harvey? Yeah. Well, we're going to do another Jimmy Stewart. We got shop around the corner. So, uh, I mean, we're going to fill it. in. We're going to fill in a lot of Jimmy Stewart stuff. So. Why not? Why not Harvey? Why not Harvey sometime soon? But that'll be tw- 2022 at the very earliest, folks. All right. Okay, we've got so many tabs open, so I want to get to Harold Ramis and Bill Murray's breakup, but let me get there by way of talking about Ghostbusters a little bit more. So, yeah, Ramis wrote this. Well, so, okay, so Ghostbusters started as a Dan Aykroyd script. Dan Aykroyd loves the occult, very strange guy, interested in all this stuff, wrote this crazy script treatment. I think it was hundreds of pages long. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but it was long. It was crazy. It involved time traveling, inner space. Like the Ghostbusters was this organization where people traveled through time and space trying to bust ghosts. It was just like this crazy script, way too expensive. They could never make it. That's just Dan Aykroyd. He is as weird as his characters and is sincere about if you see him in interviews he comes across as race stance or whatever that guy's name is like he's he is just that guy and always was and has enough money to just be that guy and he is an example of someone who's eccentric and zen and not very lovable so i guess the world doesn't just always love people Mm -hmm. when they're zen you have to Mm -hmm. also have the magical gift of likability with which bill Bill murray just has and dan eckert does not but anyway The script ends up in the lap of Ivan Reitman, who is a huge producer. He produced Animal House. He's like the comedy guy in the 80s. And he's responsible for a lot of things that people remember fondly. Meatballs, Stripes, Ghostbusters, Legal Eagles, Twins, Kindergarten Cop, Dave, Junior, like all that, all the kind of big high concept 90s Schlock. schlock. Yeah, I don't. Short of Ghostbusters, I don't know that there's anything I would consider to be close to a classic in the list that I just gave. But Ivan Reitman was the man for comedy at the time. And he often worked with Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis, like I said, came out of Second City, just like Bill Murray did. Comes out of this school of improv. But what Harold Ramis always said is that if you've seen, if you know Harold Ramis as a personality before he died, he's very, for lack of a better frame jewish uh very reserved and neurotic and verbal but retiring and what harold ramus always said is he loved working with people like bill murray because he would come up with all the crazy ideas i mean harold ramus wrote animal house so he's got quite the id but he didn't like to express it he liked to have people like belushi or people like bill murray play the crazier characters and then he would play the more reserved characters. So he writes Animal House, which by some weird fluke of fate doesn't have Bill Murray, even though it kind of feels like it should. Mm-hmm. And Animal House really changes comedy and changes frat boy culture and is just a hugely important movie that we will never do on this podcast because why would we want to? And also, we'll never do it. Then he does Meatballs, writes that with Murray. I think he's in Meatballs. I don't remember. Does Caddyshack, directs and writes it with Murray. Pretty famous Bill Murray performance. That movie stinks, but Bill Murray is pretty funny in it as the groundskeeper who's in the eternal battle with the gopher or whatever. 
Wrote Groundhog Day. Yeah, I wrote ground. Well, wrote and directed mm-hmm. Groundhog Day, but wrote Stripes. So Harold Ramis is this great writer. He's a script doctor. He's also a pretty good performer. But when Aykroyd turns in this crazy Ghostbusters draft, they're just like, let's get Ramis to like actually make this something that we can do. And so Ramis brings it into New York, makes it the story of guys starting a business, which is just so perfect in the 80s. You know, the economy is booming. Everybody's starting a business. It's in New York. And Ramis is, I think, more responsible than Aykroyd for the tone that we all love about Ghostbusters and the central joke of the movie, which is you have these three schlubby idiots that are just workaday Joes that happen to be involved in all this paranormal stuff. That that whole juxtaposition is something that Ramis brought to it. Dan Aykroyd just wanted to make a crazy ghost movie. But then they get Bill Murray and he comes in and they don't really have like a completed script. And boy, can you tell if you watch Ghostbusters as a adult. I mean, it's such a shambling movie and the mythology is so simple. It's like, don't cross the streams. Something bad will happen. And, at the, and then at the end, they're like, do cross the streams. Something good will happen. And I just described the whole plot. I mean, like. Dan Aykroyd probably says some gobbledygook to explain all that. And six-year-old Jake probably thought like it made sense and was a really cool adventure conceit and stuff. But there's just like... It's no different than if you see yourself, you might disrupt the space-time continuum. Yeah. But it's it's about on that level. Of, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually Egon who gives a science-y explanation yeah. of how it'll rip apart the... It could potentially rip apart the fabric of the universe. But it's not connected to like the characters achieving anything or learning anything. I mean, Ghostbusters is essentially a movie without a third act. It's got a really funny first act and fun first act where they set up business. Then it's got a second act where they, their business grows and this dumb bureaucrat ruins everything. And that all makes sense. And then, but then the third act is just like, "Eh, let's throw some special effects and we have a funny gag with the state path marshmallow man. But, we have absolutely nowhere further for these characters who basically aren't characters to go. I mean, there's just, there's nothing left in the tank. It's really ramshackle, but it's funny and it works because the performers are charismatic. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is a transcendently awesome special effects gag and just like the perfect ending to that movie. I mean, it, I'm not trying to criticize it. I think Ghostbusters works. I just want to make the case that it's lightning in a bottle and it's, it, it doesn't work because they tried all that hard or anyone had really great ideas. It just worked because some things just work. Some things just work. Usually. I mean, people, most of the time they don't and you forget about them. Yeah. And sometimes they do. But this one, it works, but it's, but it's, but it's, it's all just built on a really strong premise, but then they don't actually do anything with that premise. Like the, the premise is what if three schlubby guys had to deal with Victorian style, supernatural threats it's a really funny juxtaposition, and the mo- that gives the movie enough gas to make it across the finish line. But let's put them in a firehouse and let's treat them like volunteer firefighters sitting around smoking cigarettes. Yeah, and I just remember every time Ecto One went out with its little uh, siren, my dad would thought that was so funny. Like just the the premise alone of these goofballs in their stupid car, like it's a hearse. Yeah, <laughs> it's hilarious. And Ray's excited about the pole, and I mean, I'm not criticizing. Hey guys. Did you see this pole? <laughs> <laughs> this place is great. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> you got Egon and Bill Murray thinking they're haggling or negotiating and Ray. 
I don't know. Dan Aykroyd's actually pretty lovable in the role of Ray Dance. He is because it's a, it, the joke's on him instead of right. him. Yeah. It's like making fun of who Dan Aykroyd actually is. <laughs> this guy's a dork. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't help it. I thought of the one thing that it's <laughs> the Stay Puft Marshmallow. I, Ray, am Vigo. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, so it's a movie that works. It just works. It has a great premise. It has a great incongruity. Movies, comedy should always be built on. This is, I just want to drive this point home again because they didn't bother to do this in the new one. Like you have to have, you can't just have some funny lines. You have to have a funny premise. And three schlubby guys bust ghosts and treat it like a workaday job is a funny premise just like the three anarchic marx brothers end up at a high society function where you'd never expect them the opera that's a funny premise it's not doesn't take long to think of it but it's a funny premise that you could build a comedy around that you so ghostbusters has that and then it has the wonderful comedic garnish of all of bill murray's little throwaway lines and improvs and he's gonna pull out a crunch bar and give it to Egon Spangler to, you know, give him a cookie so he'll go away. And it turns out he treasured that crunch bar for 30 years and kept it in his stupid proton. But it's such a ramshackle movie. Like Ernie Hudson shows up because they need a black guy. He has no character. They don't give him anything to do. Ernie Hudson's cashed lots of checks and that they keep trying to act like he was a character that we all remember, like the beloved. He gets a great moment in uh, Ghostbusters 2 where for whatever reason, the subway Singles him out. Winston. Yeah. And he gets frozen on the tracks. You're just making me want to see Ghostbusters 2, which is not something that a friend would do to a friend, but. Sorry, man. It is what happens. And he stands there and just, ah, you know, yells the whole time. And and he also breaks up the fight between Ray and Egon. It's true. Yeah, he does things in Ghostbusters too. He does. So he gets stuff. He's he's pretty awesome in that movie. I liked him a lot as a kid. Yeah, and kids like him in the first one. But if you look at what he's actually given to do, it's like they didn't actually, they forgot to write a part for him. They just, or they cut it out or something. Who knows? It's just a weird ramshackle movie. So anyway, all of this well, is- Well, no, 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 he's the guy who needed a job and gets sucked into a bunch of crap and is like, why did I take this job? And Because the, uh, Egon and Ray are true believers. Right. Bill Murray's running it as a scam. And then Winston is the guy who's like, I answered a call for an ad for, and now I'm, I thought I was just doing a work a day job. And you're right. He brings some normal guy perspective to it. He's just like, but then that doesn't, well, anyway, (laughs) I I like Ghostbusters one. I think the reason I keep doubling down on it's a ramshackle movie is because it didn't really deserve to be a franchise. There's not a lot of meat on that bone. I think that's the point I'm trying to get to here. Um, oh, I, I'm just going to keep fighting it because I think, man, whatever they stumbled into had some cool stuff. Ecto-1 was cool. The ghosts was, was, were cool. The traps, the, mm-hmm. the proton packs, the, all of the stuff of ghost busting, the little you know, mm-hmm. stuff, the instruments that they use, all of that stuff was cool stuff. It was cool uh, it, down to their stupid little jumpsuits with the black name tags with the red letters, all that stuff. Yeah, I agree. Was cool stuff, and that stuff was stuff that was part of a world that they built on accident or not. And you wanted to play in that world and live in that world as a kid, and you wanted the 
proton pack and the thing. And that's why it was also a successful cartoon show. Yeah. And that's where <laughs> I, our paths diverge because I didn't, but I understand that lots of people did and that's fine. And your point is a solid one, which is they created a, you know, like there are people that watch this new one and they're like, they hear the crackle of the electricity as they turn on the protein ton pack and it just speaks to them. And that's not me. And it's okay if that's someone else. I, 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 I get that. But also, they keep acting like we have characters that people cared about and we have a mythology that people cared about. And no, no, you didn't have characters that people cared about. People like Bill Murray, people could barely name Peter Vankman, unless they're a kid like you. But like my dad loves Ghostbusters. He would never in a million years remember the name Peter Vankman. Peter Vankman. Dance, Egon Spangler and Winston Zedmore. Yeah. Wow. It's just the movie where Bill Murray does funny things while ghost special effects happen. That is what it's like for most people. That's right. For your casual fan. (sighs) Anyway, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. This is what I'm getting to. Yeah. So they make six movies together in certain circles. They would not. Harold Ramis is the actual star of the first Ghostbusters film. I'm just going to keep kicking against stuff you say i guess i don't know i know i i agree with that i mean there's a reason he's that... the perfect straight man in that movie mm-hmm. and he's funny i mean second second funny. to bill murray he's the funniest and for kids he's relatable if you're the science kid if you're the nerd right. if you're the geek like you'd rather be harold ramos than stupid <laughs> Ackroyd, you know i once had a slinky yeah <laughs> he's terrified beyond the capacity of no is Ackroyd terrified beyond the capacity of rational thought no that's, no, that's egon that's egon yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i think of that line all the time anytime i'm terrified beyond the capacity of rational, rational thought, thought. <laughs> so ramus and murray are best friends and or i don't know if they're best friends but they're good friends they do all these movies together murray is able to sort of be the unrepressed side of ramus and perform all this stuff and Ramus comes with good ideas, but he also knows if I don't have a good idea, we can just work together, come up with something while they're lighting the scene, and it's going to be funny. And a lot of what you love about Bill Murray and remember from all that run of classic comedies is just Ramus and Murray working together. And then they have a huge falling out during the making of their classic and the ultimate movie that they ever made together, which is, of course, Groundhog Day. And Ramus talked a lot about it. Bill Murray doesn't talk that much about it. But basically, Bill Murray was going through a divorce at the time and things just got nasty. And Bill Murray was being a prima donna and he wanted things his way and he would get mad and chew out people on the set and just all the nastiest things that you would assume about someone like Bill Murray. You know, the kind of the darker side of his persona was coming out and he wanted to make the movie more moody and more existential and more leaning into what's interesting about the whole premise of Groundhog Day. And Harold Ramis wanted to do those things, yes, but he also wanted to do a mainstream romantic comedy. And I think it the movies, people love that movie. I, I kind of love that movie, I think. Like it's a it's a nice mix of those two sensibilities, actually. It it's a good existential movie, but it's also a fun romantic comedy and i think i watched it as a kid and i felt i I, i've never actually admitted this to anybody or talked about it or thought about it i felt such weird tension about that movie that i really hated it i had a visceral reaction to it as a kid because of the existential plight of bill murray like the the horror of what he's going through It, it wasn't just the i thought i think 
It was how he was. It was how he or his character responded to all of it mm-hmm. by playing God. Yeah. That no, 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 not the plot. The edge, mm-hmm. the, the edge to Bill Murray oh, it's in an, his it's, character. It's, it's an, an incredible it's an, edge. It, the, yeah. the anger, the constant, steady anger of that character, Phil Connors, of Phil Connors, <laughs> even, even at the point of redemption, the anger is just seething with anger. I just felt. I felt that so much and I hated it. I well, hated living there for that whole movie and I hated, and I've never ever been tempted to go back to it for a second. And I've always wondered, well, I guess I should go back to it. I guess I was just a kid, but I just have such a visceral, like Bill Murray is angry for an entire movie, hates everyone, is going to kill people. Like, well, and, so yeah. and, and then has to play a trick on himself and everybody else that actually he's going to be grateful and do the right thing in order to get out of it but it's just a trick because he's still as angry as ever like that's just the way that i think about that movie so i just don't like i don't like it i understand everybody loves it i understand i'm probably wrong about it but i've always felt that way about that movie see i think that you're absolutely right and you're putting your finger on one of the things that makes the movie so great i mean it is it's like jimmy stewart in it's a wonderful life there is this undercurrent of just a person who's trapped and it really kind of gets at it in a profound way. What it doesn't do that it's a wonderful life does. And the reason why it's not quite a top tier classic is Bill Murray cannot quite bring the plane in for a landing. When he is asked to be sweet at the end, you do not quite believe it. Um, I, I remember believing it last time I actually saw the whole thing. Yeah. I think it works well. Buying the I, arc, but, but that's, that's interesting. Yeah. What Jake said. Uh, uh, when did that movie come out? Then I want to say 90. I think I have it right here. Early 90s. It's early 90s for sure. I guarantee you I saw that movie out on a new blockbuster new release. And so I didn't see it in theaters. I guarantee you I saw it first week that it would have showed up in premiere video actually. Well, probably 94 then because it looks like it came out 93. Okay. So 93, 94, I would have been nine or 10. That's an interesting time to see the movie because it's not a laugh out loud funny movie like you're expecting if you're like kind of a Ghostbusters or some of his more... My parents have been divorced three or four years. My dad's just remarried. And I'm in, what, fifth grade-ish? <laughs> Sounds like... Which is a period of time where I wanted to have nothing to do with my mom. And I would have seen this at her house. I could see so, how. Sounds like the perfect time to watch a movie about an angry, bitter man who's trapped. And I living just... the same day over and over again, <laughs> partly by his own bitterness. <laughs> and I, I hated that movie. It has to come to a zen existential acceptance of, yeah. Never wanted to watch it since. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't. Well, this is awesome. I wish we were talking about Groundhog Day. We're going to have to do it sometime soon because that's a fun thing to talk about. Let's trap Jake again. (laughs) (laughs) Pick Skowani Falls or wherever that place is. Puxitani. Puxitani, yeah. I think I I I was kind of the opposite. I responded to the anger and I loved the fantasy of being able to take out my anger all the suicidal stuff i mean this is getting, maybe getting cliff. a little dark but i remember the fact that he lives such a consequence free life not i don't think i was old enough that i responded in a bad way to the fact that he can trick women into sleeping like he gets all her details and then comes back the next go around mm-hmm. and is like hey and then they sleep together it wasn't that but just the fact that he could he could steal money live the life he wanted, play piano, learn to play piano, master all these skills to try and win Andy McDowell and all this, like the fantasy. Live, of, die, repeat, baby. Yeah, the fantasy of live, die, repeat was was a lot of fun. But 
I don't know. It'd be fun to, I think we'd probably find that movie pretty problematic if we watched it, but I think we might also enjoy it. It'd be fascinating to see what Jake thought of it all these years later. So I wish we were talking about that instead of Ghostbusters out afterlife. Anyway, Bill Murray is an angry man. Little Jake was picking up on something true because Bill Murray was at his angriest when they were making that movie. So angry that they got done with, you know, Ramus and him started talking through other people. Ramus, the screenwriter, would go and work on things. And famously, like Ramus and Murray would work on things together and they'd punch up a scene and come up with fun improvs and stuff. But none of that happened. Their relationship fell to pieces, not because Ramus was being a jerk, but because Murray was angry, angry, angry. And Murray would not speak to Harold Ramus after that. And so we never got a Ghostbusters 3. The studio, of course, was always pitching Ghostbusters 3 while Ramus was alive and everybody was pulling for it. But Murray and Ramus had this falling out, which was definitely, everybody agrees, Bill Murray's fault. And Bill Murray refused to talk to Harold Ramus for years and years and years and years. And Ramus gave all kinds of interviews and talked about how sad he was and, you know, just said, I want my friend Bill back, but he won't talk to me. Uh, and it was pretty famous, you know, one of those famous kind of Hollywood feuds. The story has a somewhat happy ending, and maybe this, maybe this helps with Ghostbusters Afterlife, but I don't really, I don't really think it does. So Ramus gets autoimmune inflammatory vasculitis and is dying of an infection thereof, and can hardly speak. Is on his way out the door. Brian Doyle Murray who's an actor and you would recognize and plays the mayor, for example, in Groundhog Day. Bill, Bill's brother says, you got to go see Harold before he dies. And so Bill Murray does one of his, I'm sorry, I just, I don't buy this. I do buy it, I guess. But I, I if, you'll, if you hear a little edge in my voice, maybe you'll understand why. Bill Murray does one of his things, one of his Bill Murray things. He shows up with a police escort and a bunch of donuts at Ramus's house. Oh, shut up. And... And apparently they have a sweet conversation. Ramus can hardly talk, but they have some laughs. They eat some donuts. According to who? According to Ramus's daughter. Okay. And so they they reconnect like days before Ramus has died. After Bill Murray has held a grudge against this man for twenty years or thirty years, from from ninety four to or from ninety three to two thousand fourteen when Ramus died. So last minute, Bill Murray goes and. Clears his conscience a little bit. Clears his record. Clears his record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I then for being cynical. And then that yeah, I feel cynical about it too. Mm-hmm. And then the same the same in case people hadn't picked up on the <laughs> undertones of my pre- presentation of the story. And then the same year Ramus gets like a shout out from the Academy Awards or something like that and Bill Murray is a presenter and has some nice things to say about Harold Ramus. But and and I I hope that they had a nice conversation and I have no reason to believe that they didn't have a nice conversation. But it's, you'll see, I think everyone will sympathize with me when I say the ending of this movie is such a word that I can't say. And I'm only glad that they didn't push it more in terms of like Peter Vank. Buddy, they pushed it hard. But they pushed it as hard as they could. It was nauseating. It was nauseating. I think that that's... It was cringe. It was cringy. It was so cringy. Let me wrap up context and then we can talk more directly about this movie. So the only other thing I wanted to say about the making of this movie, it is Jason Reitman. He's the son of Ivan and we already kind of gave the context, but Reitman, if you don't know, he's an indie director who 
was fairly beloved. Here's the other thing that's suspect. He did he had three pretty big indie hits with Juno, which was pretty universally beloved, not by me, but by many people. Juno never has, saw it. has some fun moments. Did you see Juno, Ben? No, never did. Uh, he did Thank You for Smoking, which was a pretty good movie, as I recall. Very anti-smoking, obviously, but funny. And Into the Air, which was a good movie with George Clooney. And he did another one that people tend to like, which is Young Adults with Charlie's Theron. I have not seen that. But then he had a few box office bombs, a few things that didn't quite take off. And it just feels a little convenient that he chose to do a Ghostbusters movie just now. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> His career really needed a surefire hit right now. Whether he, you know. Fail. Yeah. I, well, it's not a fail. The box office isn't agreeing with me. Rotten Tomatoes isn't agreeing with me, but. Rotten Tomatoes is kind of agreeing with you, but not as much no, as it not. should. The critics are at 60 something percent, 67%, which is positive. And audiences were at 94 last time I checked. 94. That was oh, still closer to opening day. Would have been Thursday or Friday, so it would have been super fans, but. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this. What's it at now, Ben? Movie. Getting there. Still getting there. While Ben gets there, folks, I make no apology for talking a long time about Bill and Murray and about all these different things because they're so much more interesting than the movie we're about to talk about. 62% critic score. Well, I just, it makes me despair for humanity. The fact that people are willing to, like, here's your swill, audience, enjoy. And they're willing to just be pandered to in this way. I mean, that it's this movie is pretty dumb and pretty bad. It's grave robbery. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's such a such a disservice to Harold Ramis, to say the very least. Yeah. I have a bunch of metaphors. I can't use them. Yeah. Yep. Well, I guess we can explain spoilers at the end of the movie. Let's just, let's just talk about this first because it's far and away the most interesting thing. Uh-huh. Uh, so, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, they just give up. Paul Rudd stops playing a character and starts playing a goofy guy in a Walmart commercial. Yep. Um, yep. And then after that, the movie sucked. And it already sucked before that, but, but, but they just stopped making a movie they, and they started just like doing riffs on old, hey, there's Gozer. Well, hey, they, I mean, the, the first Ghostbusters was a ramshackle collection of scenes and gags, Nathan. And so now, so are we. Yeah, except for... We forgot the gags. <laughs> I mean, if they had some gags. It's just callbacks. Uh, did you not see the Marshmallow Men, Nathan, in Walmart? Oh, man. I did did, did <laughs> I not silly? laugh at the marsh- Marshmallow Men? <laughs> there was one in a blender. I don't know if you saw this part, Nathan, but he got gooped. Yes, it was most amusing. They were all very gleeful about it. They all were, yeah. Yeah, so did he, you know, roast me, melt me. As another critic, I was, yeah. uh, as a critic, I was, uh, there's no way Stay Puffed stays in business after... Their mascot, and they're gonna they're gonna change their mascot after their mascot terrorizes New York in 1984. <laughs> Just in universe, it's very silly. That, yeah. uh, well, everything since is ridiculous. Like, oh, we've all forgotten that the New York was taken over by a giant marshmallow man, and that these guys took the Statue of Liberty on a walk through New York Harbor. <laughs> it's like, what the heck? Right. Hey, it's so bad. We don't believe this is real. This is movie so lazy. But the the it ends with like the bad guys about to kill our heroes. Oh no! And then who should show up? But the original Ghostbusters. But even that's not quite enough. And then who should show up? 
But the CGI ghost of Harold Ramis, just like I and everyone predicted would happen, but hoped they would have enough taste to not, not to do not do as on the nose as they did. I mean, they have like Egon Spangler's ghost through the movie and he's like motivating things and moving things around and you know it's him. And It was a bold choice to come out and have the first pre-credit scene of the movie be here's a, the shadowy old Egon and we're going to kill him on screen and then we're going to have him manifest as a ghost and let you know that this is a Harold Ramis haunted film. Bold stroke. I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, I I think you could do it though. If you had something interesting to say about Spangler. I I reserved judgment. I was like, well, okay, well, that's bold. That's like, in in some ways it gave me some hope. It's like, we're not pretending here. We're not going to like try to sucker punch you at the end. This is a Harold Ramis ghost story. And so now we've told you. And so it's all going to be about how we show you in the end. I, I respected that more bold turn of choice. Like I, I didn't expect it, but I respected the move. But. Mm. If you're going to do it, I guess that's the way to do it. But then what you don't do is oh have CGI Harold Ramis just show up and fully be shown and linger through a good five minutes of screen time, which is forever in screen mm. time. All yeah. kinds of forever of uh, just like staring at CGI ghost Harold Ramis's face. And he's not going to say anything, which is kind of awkward in and of itself in terms of the story. He's not going to oh, do anything yeah. but smile at everybody. And so he's going to like reconnect with his estranged daughter and he's going to commend his granddaughter. And then he's going to look at the original Ghostbusters. He's going to have a moment with every character that he and needs to And then he's going to cross over. Yeah. And then he crosses over and like his pixie dust flies into the sky. And then the the title appears for Harold. Yeah. And it's just and and I think that they mechanically extracted a few tears from me. I'm a you know, they the, did. The, Wonder yeah. World 1984 Not from me. extracted well you're better. <laughs> I'm a robot. <laughs> Wonder World 1984. Wonder World 1984. <laughs> in the world are you talking the, about? The year that Ghostbusters was released. <laughs> it was a Wonder World and it had that woman uh, you remember oh, did she fight the Nazis in her underwear? She fought the Nazis but, but <laughs> it took me a minute to figure out what we were uh messing up here but she didn't fight the nazis in her underwear in this one she fought the the cheeto uh mascot <laughs> in her underwear and uh, she also fought the mandalorian in his underwear and he had his son or daughter or something son. like that and they were like I, I just needed you to be my dad and that extracted a tear <laughs> out of me i didn't need you to be a super villain that gave wishes <laughs> to the <laughs> The world in this crappy movie. I just needed my dad, and that extracted a tear out of me. So I'm a sucker for dad stuff, but yeah. but and I, and I predicted, by the way, that I'm not happy to be right. By the way, I mean maybe I am a little bit, but I would much rather have a good Ghostbusters. It would movie. extract tears, and you would be angry that they'd bring back CGI Harold Ramis. That it would extract tears, and that it would suck, and we would be angry about it. And that's exactly what happened. Yep, you nailed it. Uh, I mean, that was an easy prediction. It doesn't make it me pretty m- easy. much of a, I'm not, uh, is there a psychic character in Ghostbusters? Well, yeah. All the people guessing the cards. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not the guy sitting next to the pretty co-ed in Ghostbusters. Or the, oh, oh, there's some cameo in, in uh, Ghostbusters 2. Is it John Lovitz? No, he plays. He's in it, but he's just like Dana Barrett's work mate or something, isn't he? Yeah. No. No, that's that guy Peter McCullough or whatever his name is. He's. I think I think it might be John Lovitz is. Can't, I don't know. Whatever. When they go to get Peter Venkman, he's not a professor. This time he's he's got a 
a, sh- a TV show. Yeah. And the dude's gonna like, you know, he's predicting the end of the world and, you know, all the details and that are gonna come true later in the thing, whatever. Anyhow, sorry, I'm just pulling Ghostbusters knowledge for no reason. Well, no, it's proving that you have the most right to hate this movie because it was made for you and you still hate it because you don't like cynically being pandered to and that's all this movie did and the ending was pretty I gross. I didn't even feel pandered to. I felt... You brought me some pig swell, but you didn't actually make me eat it. Yeah, I didn't even want... I didn't even want this. Like, I didn't... Like, I'm just not... For all of the pulls I'm giving you here, I don't... It's not magic. The world of Ghostbusters is not magical. It's cool. It's fun stuff, but it's not like... It's not going to evoke the same feeling as switching on a lightsaber or something like that. Switching on a proton pack is not... Was never like that. No. They were comedies. This this movie sure... They were still meant to be funny. It just wasn't epic. This movie sure acts like... We're going to switch on the proton pack. It's the thing we've been waiting for all these years. Well, it it does buy into its own Spielberg reboot premise, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Yes, it it sure does. All all the way to the hilt of like, this is Indiana Jones with his whip. Except it's a proton pack, but... Who cares? But it's not because Ghostbusters was a ramshackle comedy with a silly mythology that didn't actually spend a lot of time on proton packs. They were just the thing. I mean, yeah, we they had cool toys. Jake played with the Happy Meals. I, I admit that people have a connection to it, but it now now that we well, and, and then and then and then you get further into this movie, and at the point where it ditches the story, and it's like, well, actually, we were telling you this is a nostalgic mythology that's consistent with real characters, and now what we'd like to tell you is. No one cares about anything, but we'll have some scenes of kids fighting ghosts and, and CGI Harold Ramis. Just, it does. It stops trying so hard. <laughs> you wonder why they bothered trying in the first place. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, so here's the one thing. The amount of elbow grease that goes into things that they don't pay off or don't care about Man. by the time it's over is just like, why did we waste all that time setting all of these? Uh, I just don't understand. These are I, characters who matter. I, I've never. I don't know that I Except could. Except now they don't. You now could. I, don't. Could, I don't know that we could name a movie that spends more time carefully developing characters than it that it, that it just throws away. Then it throws away. Here's yeah. the mom. Here's her deal. Here's what she's going. Ah, dead to who cares? She's the mom. Jurassic World does some of that. Jurassic okay. World is somewhat similar to this, uh, but not as egregious. Here's oh, here's yeah. Finn Wolfhard. He wants the girl, and it's ah, uh, he's uh, he and now he's got the girl. Yeah, and now she likes just, him. For just instantly, one of the dogs. And now what? Here's but, here's the little science nerd, and she's got a problem relating to people. Except now she's she, got a friend, and, and, and she she's really charming. And she doesn't care anyway. Yeah, and every she's fine. Here's Paul Rudd. He's got playing a character. Oh, now he's in an advertisement for Walmart where. We didn't even give him to, I, I think as you pointed out, Jake, when, after when we were sit, standing in the theater, like, we forgot to write a scene. So, we're just like, hey, Paul Rudd, do something. And then he, like, comes in and <laughs> he's, he's, like, like whistling. <laughs> do 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 He, like, does a little dance. He's like, yeah, Baskin Robbins. <laughs> yeah. That's what I want. It was da, fun to watch da. him. I, I appreciated him trying to bring something oh, to I was that. so that, happy that anytime. Whole, I don't love Paul Rudd or Ant-Man or anything. That whole Walmart I, scene just exists to give you a... Some cute merchandising and trailer opportunities for the baby Stay Puff guys. Yeah, you liked that's uh, it. You liked Baby Groot, didn't you? You pigs. Here's yeah. some. <laughs> here's and then you t- and then Disney doubled down and gave you Baby Yoda. So guess what? We're gonna yeah. do here's Baby Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Yeah. And and then you've got then you've got the mom. What's mom's characteristic? She's a loser with a heart of gold. 
No. No. She's just a loser. Well, is she a good parent? Well, no. no. Uh, is she? Does she have any marketable skills? Uh, not no. that we learn of. Why does Paul Rudd want her? Well, he says he loves dumpster fires. Why don't we just give him the benefit of the doubt? He actually is just a loser, too. And together, they're actually kind of gross. And when the movie degrades them, it's just falling to their level. Right. That's how it feels. And that's that's actually a really gross feeling. Yeah, it is. For, for a kid's movie to not have a parent who's a good parent or even a father figure-ish guy. Or, or even a parent that you can kind of push against. Like, none of us love the trope of the bad authority figure that just sucks and is there to make all the no. wrong choices. But at least that's a thing. Like, it's a well, it's a story beat. It is a story. And then, oh, and then Paul Rudd's going to make this pervy joke about, oh, don't worry, maybe your little awkward daughter will grow up to become a pole dancer. Oh, yeah. Like, that's just really, that. that's a little beyond the pale. It's, uh, it's gross. Come on, movie. Yeah. Is that, I mean, I guess that's a, a callback to Spielberg era gross jokes in kids' movies or something. Yeah. Ugh, boy. Yeah. This it was, we need this movie to feel funny and snappy and we came up with a bad joke. I actually yeah. didn't mind a lot of the dialogue in Acts 1 and 2 just as kind of dramedy, it was, banter it was, and a it dramedy. Was snappy. It was snappy. I, I, I was like, movie, I kind of trust you. Are you going somewhere? Yeah, but then the Walmart scene, it's just like, no. <laughs> we're not. Going to Walmart. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's where we're going. <laughs> yes, we're glad you asked. Walmart is where we're going. What were you going to say, Jim? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Mm. Oh, man. And then <laughs> I didn't trust it. I didn't. I, from the beginning, I came in really excited and hopeful. I gave it the opening scene. The Spangler runs through the cornfields scene. Yep. I gave, I gave it Spangler runs yeah, through the, the cornfields. I gave it the Spangler's got a trap. I gave it the, I know that this is where we're, we're going to end. We're going to end on the front porch with his daughter holding up the trap and she's going to make it work with the help of his ghost. I gave it that we're going to kill Harold Ramis's character on screen with a scene from the original Ghostbusters movie. I gave it the, and we're going to be able to track his character with Egon's famous little instrument that he mm-hmm. carried around. And then we jumped to the apartment. And by the time we got on the road, I think I was, it was already actively losing me. I never gave it anything. But once we met the characters, I kept sort of trying and me and the movie made an uneasy agreement. Like, you haven't really got me movie, but we'll see. I don't know. Maybe this Mm -hmm. is going somewhere. Like, these kind of feel like real characters and I don't know, they kind of suck. Like, they're not that well. McKenna Grace is a good actress and that comes through. And Finn Wolfhard's a good actor, but. Boy, did they not give him anything to do. They didn't give him anything to do. And they 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 totally wasted him. What'd well, they pretend they do. Somehow. Well, it really felt like we want to make this McKenna Grace's character's story, but she needs serious backup. And so we're pulling in a ringer. And we're doing an 80s riff. So let's get a Stranger Things kid because we have no more imagination than that. So here's our ringer. Yeah. Well, the other thing about it is I just think I, I get tired of complaining about this stuff, but it's worth complaining about every time. You know, wokeism just ruins movies because the obvious arc for Finn Wolfhard is... He has to earn the girl by, like, saving her or manning up or doing something, be- becoming someone, going having a character arc where he goes from Why boy to man. Why does the dopey dweeb 15-year-old actually get the pretty cute 
Girl, there's no reason whatsoever. Well, there's an obvious reason that movies have been giving us since the silent era, which is he punches out the bully. You know, it's the George McFly story. Right. He grabs a proton pack and does something manly. And then she's like, aw. But we can't do that story anymore because that's sexist. And that's making her into a damsel in distress and all that sort of stuff. And so that just means we can't have a story. We can't even have a reason why she falls in love with him. We're just going to have her do some sub Zendaya stuff and yep. now she likes him for some reason. <laughs> That's not actually an arc. Like they, they forgot to, it's just, it's baffling to me. Like somebody had to sit down at a word processor and process words and put them on a page. And you would think as they did that, just naturally, they'd think I have a character and he's going to have a progression where he starts somewhere and he ends somewhere. But instead they... They, 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 like even the original Ghostbusters has, you know, as ramshackle as I've spent a lot of time arguing it is, it's like, we understand Bill Murray is in love or in lust or in whatever with Sigourney Weaver. And he is either going to get her at the end or he isn't, you know, like there's. Yep. It's and not, if we make another one, we've got to come up with a reason why they never ended up together actually. Right. The, 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 place. the original ramshackle Ghostbusters is a masterpiece of character and of story just because naturally people did those things. But it's, it's this weird thing. We saw it in Shang-Chi too. It's, it's like they don't actually bother to put together stories. And, and I think a lot of it is wokeism. I think you can't do a lot of simple story beats like guy defeats villain and wins girl. You, you, have, to, you have to take a lot of pieces off the table these days, which means you can't just do certain things that would have been super obvious. I, I think that's one reason. But, but I also think there's just something so formless and so lazy about modern film post. It, it's just, it baffles me. It's weird. Like Jason Reitman's obviously a thoughtful guy. Everyone has standard intelligence. How do you sit down and write a script where you don't ask the question, who is Finn Wolfhard and what is he doing? And how will that connect with an audience? <laughs> Who is this character that we are writing for Finn Wolfhard? Yeah. So that we can justify casting Finn Wolfhard. I mean, that's... so that we can cover our butts with this daughter character that I really care about. Yeah. Just... And how do we make it so that he can step in and be more if she doesn't have the chops to play this role? And, and how do we make it so we can dial him back but still justify his existence if she really shines the way that we want her to? Right. That conversation had to have happened somehow, but it really doesn't look like it did. Well, she came in and she just knocked it out of the park and she's great. I mean, she's really strong. They didn't strong. write her much of anything either. She's just a good actress. So it's like you end up feel coming away. We were at the movie with, it wasn't just the two of us. And someone's like, well, I, I actually didn't like that character. It's like, well, okay, you didn't like the character. That's fine. But acknowledge that the actress brought a whole lot to a big nothing burger of a role. Yeah. She does a good job. I mean, the character is schizophrenic. They forgot like some, some scenes they're writing her as the new Egon Spangler. Like she is autistic. And then other scenes, she's kind of cool and gets it. And she's more self-aware. Sometimes she believes in her corny jokes. Sometimes she has actual like witty comebacks Mm -hmm. and it's very weird and there again it's just like you couldn't just dial her one direction like just make her the awkward kid and then it'll be really sweet when podcast is a whole other thing we could talk about what a stupid character but you know when podcast becomes her friend and everything 
that'll be sweet because she never had friends because can she I, is. Can I call him magical Asian friend? Is that it, okay with you? Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. He deserves to be called it. He's like the perfect, cute, charming friend just existing to be your friend and fulfill a plot. You know, necessity. maybe it's because he does. While also adding diversity to this random town that doesn't appear that it should have much. Well, also, I want to say that he kind of works because he's, yeah, he's a really charming actor and they play well off each other. Yeah, and they you, do. And you like them talking together and doing stuff. Well, and there's more than one way to answer my problem with these weird half-written characters. One, one way is to fully write them. That's the good way. But then the other way is to just reduce them to... An archetype, and that's to what color. to color, and that's yeah. what podcast works as. He is, as Jake pointed out, he's he's just the fifth Goonie, you know. Right. He's yeah. He's data. You know. He's something like that. Where when you have and you're going for that Spielberg vibe, you can always have the character. Like you see that kind of thing all the time. He's just got one shtick. He's got one thing. It's amplified. He speaks like nobody would speak for their age, and it's okay because he's bringing some color and humor, and it's a part of the fun of you know yeah of everything but Mm -hmm. they don't really bring together that team if it had been less mckenna grace's character what's her phoebe phoebe yeah if it'd been less a phoebe story and more phoebe and finn and zendaya fake zendaya and fake ned then you could have had more of that team vibe yeah but it's weird. Like, they didn't want to write anything for fake Zendaya. They wanted her to be fake Zendaya, and they thought that that would be enough. But it's like she can't just be the object of lust like she would have been in, the, in an 80s movie. But then we still yeah. want to actually find a weird way to nod our head at that. Show her back as she's putting on her... Uh... Yeah, that was gross. Yeah. Just throw, in, throw, throw it in. Yeah. The, the only character they actually give an arc to is the mom. She's, she's, she's a loser without a dad who gets to have emotional closure with her dad who abandoned her. After disappearing into the role of a dog for the entire third act. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I, I didn't say that they gave her dignity, only that they gave her an arc. <laughs> or that it worked. I mean... Right. Uh, well... She's, and, she's, just, and she's tasked with imitating Sigourney Weaver's possession scene. I, yeah, I just mean it. she's consistent. Like She's consistent, yeah. She, she's actually she, written. But but here's the thing about the mom. <laughs> so far as they write her. What, what, what is her job? I know, uh, I know. Like... Doesn't have one, but but like, who is she? Who was Mrs. Spangler? Like, who is her mom? Like, there's just some basic who story beats husband? that the movie like, they just ignore. The movie thinks it can just jump over this stuff, and some of it you can, but you have to at least nod towards it or have some shorthand that covers it. You can't just pretend like some like I don't know. I don't love Ghostbusters mythology. I, I think just it's, can't believe they didn't make any pots or. Mom. Wait, that's what I was about to say. I don't love the mythology of Ghostbusters, but one thing that I remember sweetly about the first Ghostbusters movie, or is the relationship between Harold Ramis and Annie Potts, the fact that they just threw that away, and now Annie Potts is the realtor or something like that, was super lame. Mm-hmm. Like, like there are scant few things that an adult can connect to on some level emotionally about the original Ghostbusters. That's one of them. Well, you know, okay. So in canon, what you're gonna what, what you're gonna say if you're hitting up against this is, oh, but Annie Potts ended up with Rick Moranis's character, and that was a better fit. That was water finding its level. She aspired to ego, and she couldn't shouldn't have aspired that high or something right. like that. She had to settle. And part of the joke of Ghostbusters too is all the ways that she tries to fit up Rick Moranis's character to be Egon Part Two, right? Including dressing him in Egon's Ghostbusters suit and sending him out to with a proton pack to stand out and impotently shoot 
at the outside of the shell while the real Ghostbusters are inside doing the job. But I just don't see why, I just don't see why you don't come around and make Annie Potts mom anyway. I mean, goodness. Well, I, I just had Reuters put out a poll and it turns out, statistically speaking, Jake, you're one of three people in America that remembers that plot point from Ghostbusters 2. And uh, <laughs> they needed to make it this a sequel to Ghostbusters 1. <laughs> I mean, well, they, they definitely did and treated it that way. The, the movie did not act like Ghostbusters 2 was much of anything. Right. They basically did that. But then we're going to pay lip service to this random plot point. Like, just, just, just forget that plot point. It was funny in Ghostbusters 2, I assume. But who cares? Of course, Spangler and Annie Potts should be to together. Yeah. Or. Well, what they needed to do is have had a fling or whatever. Yeah, or something. Like something. She, she's because the mom. what you can't yeah. you can't have is in, in Annie Potts cameo where Annie Potts doesn't seem to care that much about Harold Ramis for one thing. <sighs> That's emotionally deflating. Yeah. Well and, and then what are you gonna do if she was are you are you really supposed to believe that Annie Potts was the wife of the crazy dirt farmer that nobody took seriously and everybody was isolated from? Like How's she going to play that character? I don't know. It's just problems on problems. Problems on problems. For plot reasons in this movie, they they nix the obvious choice. Uh, well, there's a lot of bad things to talk about uh, about this movie. I think we've talked about a lot of them. I, I don't know that we ever really closed the loop on Harold Ramis's ghost at the end showing up stinks. And I think the thing that feels is really cynical about it to me is that I think that's how you get Murray to do the movie. I don't think Murray has any interest in doing a Ghostbusters movie. Certainly not an interest in putting the proton pack on and playing Venkman again. But if you give him, a, him, an, a, him an opportunity to rewrite history a little bit and lend a little more closure to his relationship, his famously bad relationship with Harold Ramis, I think he'll do it. And if you watch the interviews with Murray, he talks about, you know, everybody's going to cry when they see the end of this. It's obvious. I just think it's really slimy, the whole Ramus angle and the whole Murray and Ramus angle is just, it feels really bad. Well, I wish they would have done something like the joke that I pitched to you guys upstairs. Yes, which you should now pitch to the audience of this podcast. Well, you have this like long five minute scene of everybody like making eye contact and making their peace with the ghost of Harold Ramus. Right. And at some point, what you should have actually done is had Harold Ramis go full-on scary ghost on Bill Murray's character in a jump scare moment. Just a rat. And yeah, just like a, you know, Bilbo with a ring or something like that. Just like- Or the librarian in Ghostbusters. Or the librarian in, in the original Ghostbusters, you know. Just like have Ramis jump scare Bill Murray. Have him wet himself, for goodness sake. Like, have the joke be on Bill Murray for one second. Have him be put on his heels- have Harold Ramis's ghost get the upper hand and laugh at him mm -hmm. or in a way that everybody laughs at him and right. the jokes on Bill Murray. And that actually does more to accomplish whatever it is we're trying to accomplish here for Bill Murray's legacy. Yeah. But the movie wasn't enough steps ahead of its audience and of, I mean, this movie's just not so boring and so pandering. It's not subversive. Like the original Ghostbusters kind of hates society and hates people and, hates hotel concierges that are, you know, angry at us for blowing up their hotels while we bust ghosts. It's it's, <laughs> it's anarchic in a way that's fun for kids and, you know. And we're going to charge you like crazy for it. Yeah. yeah. Bill Murray has this, just this, he's subversive. 
That's what's fun. You can you we can have a conversation of whether it's godly fun, but it's fun. It's what's fun about Ghostbusters if you like. While Ghostbusters. we're in this room, I'm gonna try to whip the tablecloth out from under this and break all the glasses, right? Because I can. This you know to have a, to make a reverent Ghostbusters movie, which is what this tries to be, is to miss the entire spirit of ghostbusters <laughs> no pun intended well yeah. yeah you just it misses almost every opportunity it takes and yeah then, and then it yeah. well okay so square that with me saying at the top that trying to make a spielberg movie was the right was the right move or could potentially the right move you just have to zanify the spielberg formula which this movie isn't willing to do i'm not saying i know how i just feel i have an instinct it could be done i mean go, spielberg also produced gremlins there there is dark amblin and there's a way to do that there's a way to mm-hmm. and, and ghostbusters has more yeah. of that spirit <laughs> you're welcome people you're welcome guys but yeah you can't so here's the thing i kept thinking this movie really makes me appreciate force awakens because force awakens does a couple things right that this movie does dead wrong uh, number whoa, one whoa. Hey, you're welcome. What can I say except you're welcome. Star Wars Force Awakens. Here's the main thing that Star Wars Force Awakens does right. It knows why people loved the original Star Wars and it makes a sequel to those feelings. And so it creates camaraderie between the characters. It has a bunch of characters that all seem to really like each other. High energy, likable people. Say what you will about the sequels. But... Ray's really likable. You buy her relationship with Han Solo. You buy her relationship with uh, Finn and Dracula. Uh, what's what are the other characters' names in that thing? Uh, what's what's the black guy's name? It's not Dracula. No, it's Finn. Yeah. What, okay. What's Poe? Poe is his name. Poe Dameron. See, there yeah. was a weird connection in my brain to Dracula. You can see how I made it to Dracula there. No, <laughs> that I can't. stream of conscious because Poe. Poe. Yeah. Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe to other horror, horror to Victorian to horror to Dracula. Obvious. Yeah, it all makes... Well, I'm in the moment. I'm in the moment, like a great (laughs) improv guy. I'm in the moment. So it captures the spirit of Star Wars, which which J.J. Abrams correctly figured out was high energy, fun, bantery characters, shooting guns down hallways, being in the desert, and, and, and it gives you enough stuff. And then... It does not have Luke Skywalker save the day. And I think we were all mad that it didn't. Like, you're not even going to have Luke meet Han. Da, 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 da. But it, it does not rely on, oh, you're going to have all this emotion about Luke. And so just having him show up will be enough. But, 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 that, but when he shows up, it means we can throw away the arc with the other characters. Now, I know we've the Mandalorian did this. And I'm going to get to that. And I know it's what we said Rise of Skywalker should have done. And I'm going to get to that. But... It was still smart that Force Awakens didn't do that. In the equivalent movie, like if, if, if Ghostbusters was doing, being smart in the ways, then we'd have a subversive comics connected to a high adventure kids movie. But it would be fast. It would be zany. It wouldn't be these long kind of indie scenes. You, you that, know what? Sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Well, let me just finish my point. Yeah, finish uh, your point. It, it, would, it, would, it, would be, it would be fast. It would be zany. It would be exciting. It would have lots of jokes. It would have moments of subversion. Like, oh, I just can't believe that they did that. You know, you get James Gunn to do a pass on the script. Like, I mean, I don't really like that idea, but you know what I mean? Like, yep. it'd have some, exactly some moments of rebellious, just like, oh, boy, you can't do that in a movie. 
because you, it'd be making a true spiritual sequel, haha, to the original Ghostbusters. And then if you wanted to have Vankman in, you either write a part for him for Bill Murray to play, or you just have him show up completely as a little symbol at the end, the way Luke Skywalker shows up at the end of force awakens like oh there's vankman he means something iconically to us but or you know there's the guys in their proton pack that's cool but you don't actually rely on them having emotion when you haven't laid that into this movie what if my idea is what if you have a phone call with dan Aykroyd where he has time to establish the back story and the mythology and really make you feel like it's grounded and connected (laughs) while talking to a complete stranger (laughs) yeah (laughs) right opening up to this little girl on the phone and that he wants to hang up with, but for some reason suddenly decides to just tell everything. Yeah, I think that would be a good way to establish continuity. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Um, it's good stuff. Or you could just not not do that. The thought that occurred to me that I'd, it's a little like derailing mm-hmm. to throw it out there. If this had been conceived as a six or eight episode arc. Yeah, I actually had the same. I thought about that while watching it. Yeah. This is a better TV show. It's a much better TV show. It's a mystery, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a puzzle. You get the episode where she solves the puzzle of the floor and finds the trap. You get the episode where she pieces together and she's figuring out who her granddad is and why he was here in the first place. And it becomes this sort of like kids adventure mystery show where she is cracking the code and solving the puzzle. And has come to like, he wasn't crazy. He was special. He's like me. Like those moments could have meant something more than they did. But then you have time to develop Finn Wolfhard, his relationship with Hot Chick. You have time to develop Paul Rudd as more than just a guy that does random things to make certain scenes and exposition work. Uh, Yep. You you have have time time to develop the mom and just show her trying to figure out, well, how am I supposed to live here? I thought I had an inheritance. I guess I don't. Right. You you, you have time to make it a world where adults don't always behave like adults should because it's zany Ghostbusters world. Right. Yeah. That's what you want. and, And you can, as you build towards your finale, we can see the pieces coming together with the with the original trio mm-hmm. as they move towards and then in showing at up. the end of episode 7 of this thing of this mini series they show up and you go yay and then episode 8 is a whole episode with like an arc in it and yeah. things written and shtick for bill murray to do and not just hey bill murray can you do the same joke about gozer's your girlfriend 9000 times which in the old, like, Ramus days, that is all they show up with. And then Ramus and Murray, because they're genius and they're electric together, come up with a bunch of funny stuff. And Bill Murray's there to play and they do something magical. But that's not who Bill Murray is these days. And that's okay. He doesn't have to be. But he, don't... How old is the guy anyway? I like, mean, he's got to be he gone. He looks... He looks really old. He finally really, really looks old. He is, oh, he's just 71. Huh, he looks, I would have guessed about that. Yeah, I was going to put him a little older. He, I, he, I just can't. I was going to guess 70. I can't recall seeing him ever look so old in a movie. No. Yeah. Me either. Yeah, he, he, looked, he looked old and tired in this movie. I, I, just, oops, I just saw a kid's show with my wife that I recommend called The Mysterious Benedict Society. There's nothing objectionable. It's a fun, funny, quirky thing on Disney Plus where it is smart kids solving puzzles and and the adults all are kind of dumb, but they're dumb in a very consistent way. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
there's still the adults in the kids' world, but it's not realism, is what I mean. It establishes a quirky, funny world where these kids can solve mysteries right. and have silly things happen and have certain kinds of villains that, that are all consistent from a kid perspective. It's really fun. And this movie is like, no, we want a sense of realism. Here's the sheriff, except he's not going to react like you actually destroyed his town with a mysterious weapon. But he is going to try to give you a sense of, it's just like, guys, stop trying to split this difference. Yeah, the real, you know? the Ghostbusters from the, I don't want to say the real Ghostbusters because that's the animated series, but the Ghostbusters from Ghostbusters 1984 don't belong in the universe of this movie. And that's a pretty crucial mistake for any kind of, when, people, right. when, you, when you make a sequel or when you make an adaptation, the thing people always get wrong is people are going to be mad, be mad if we adapt a book and we don't contain we don't keep all the plot elements that you know but actually nobody cares nobody cares nobody everybody cares. understands they just want the feeling they read the book mm -hmm. it gave them a feeling they want that same feeling they saw the first movie it's the reason why people feel so betrayed by something like temple of doom because they wanted that raiders feeling and then they got a pretty good dark adventure movie that you know with in his now has its place in history and we all kind of like it but yeah but everybody felt betrayed by it because it didn't give them the same feeling and it's why the harry potter movies are as beloved as the books it, despite jettisoning all kinds of things changing things whole characters missing peeves and all that sort of thing like for the most part it feels e like harry e potter each movie feels like harry potter it feels like Mm -hmm. It took a while for it to get its feet, but once it got its feet, like everything feels like it should feel for the most part. And mm -hmm. so, in some cases, better. Right. And yeah. so it just works, like it harmonizes. Yeah. Right. And nobody feels like, so my kids, they get to watch the first three movies before they read the books because I don't care about Harry Potter that much. Mm -hmm. And and then they read the books before they watch the movies from four on. Right. Uh, when they get to the, the right age for it. And none of the kids, like Ian just read the first two. And Ian's the kind of kid who's like, I wish I would have never have even seen the Lord of the Rings movies. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they, like, I had this whole world built and it got destroyed. And now I'm angry because I can't have that back. Peter Jackson's idea replaced my idea. Mm -hmm. And he's that kind of kid. But to him, reading the Harry Potter books is just like, oh, wow, this same exact world is just that much more rich and cool and fun behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting behind the scenes looks at all of these yeah. things. It's like. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Just trying to prove your point. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the example I always think of is Jurassic Park. The book and the movie have nothing to do with each other, but they both have dinosaurs attack a theme park. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they both have the feeling of what if dinosaur, you know, it, so it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, no, it really doesn't. You're right. Nerds will complain about all kinds of things, but the, the reason The Force Awakens works, basically, the reason people kind of liked it is because it gave you that Star Wars feeling. Mm -hmm. And the reason everybody turned on Last Jedi and everybody turned on so many of these other ones is because... They didn't give you the Star Wars feeling. Whatever other things they did right, you just didn't end up feeling, you didn't walk out of the movie feeling the same way that you walked out of an old George Lucas Star Wars movie. What was conflicting about The Last Jedi is that it gave you all of the feelings in the moment. Right. But the cumulative effect but the cumulative was, effect as you walked away was, well, that just, I think. I think that maybe that guy think, hated I Star Wars. Just, yeah. I think he just destroyed everything I love. Right. Well, tell it. Well, well, mm -hmm. he fed me so much sugar in the movie 
that I swallowed all the poison and now I think Star Wars is dead in my heart. Yeah. Yeah, I hate this movie and this guy. And Ghostbusters actually is somewhat similar in that it gives you like, oh, that's what those demon dogs looked like. That's kind of a cool new way of doing those retro special effects. And there's Gozer and there's all the things. But the cumulative effect has nothing to do with Ghostbusters. And when the Ghostbusters show up. Oh, my goodness. They're just old and tired and. And they, and they step out from behind a car or something. Yeah, it's really lame. It's like <laughs> it's very lame. It's like they didn't even want to be there. Bill Murray didn't want to do it. Dan Aykroyd's old and fat. And the reason I keep saying old is because it does matter. I mean, there is something, not, not to be ageist or something, but it, there is a certain flippancy and rebellion. and They had real verve this, in, in, in energy. first movie. When Ray's going to like go on about whatever and Bill Murray's going to try his shtick on the babe. Yeah, and to pretend like Bill Murray in his 70s has all that same thing, those same things and brings all that same stuff. It's like, no, he, he doesn't. He can't just flirt with the monster. It's funny to see in his 40s, Bert Bill Murray or whatever he was in his 30s, uh, flirt with the monster. It's not, it's weird to see this old man. There's no joke there. You, you lost it. Like it's, there's nothing. I mean, if he would have made a joke instead of like going on about how we could have worked and been a power couple if he would have said, wow, you know, if he would have, again, put the joke on himself where I, you can either do this straight on or you can do the inversion of, wow, you've held up great. I wish I could say the same for myself or, you know, you, you've you not held up at all. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, something, something that just puts the joke on himself. And that's a fantastic Ghostbusters 3, by the way. Egon Spangler is dead. We had a falling out. And now I'm an old man who doesn't have the juice anymore. That's, that's a, that's a pretty fun. I mean, it's, it's what they probably should have done with the fourth Indiana Jones. It's what they did actually somewhat. It's what they unsuccessfully did with last Jedi, but they did somewhat successfully do with Han Solo in force awakens. You just have to address and lean into what you've got. You can't pretend like 71 year old Bill Murray walking by out, out, out into your movie is the same thing. Yeah. or gives this has the same effect. It's crazy. Not the same vibe, not the same energy, not the same guy. Because not the same guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I want to briefly address, so I said an objection to the whole, don't, you can't just have the Ghostbusters show up, is that we love it when Luke, when Luke Skywalker shows up at the end of Mandalorian, and we love it when, what's the other big, oh, we always argued that Rise of Skywalker should have just ended with all of our favorite heroes. All the showing. Force guests. Yeah. Well, the reason there is because the movie and the franchise was so broken at that point that that was the only card that you had left to play. It wasn't that we thought it would actually be a good movie if that happened. It's just that the, we knew the movie had nowhere to go but terrible. And so it would have been... Might as well do the, the thing that everybody's going to be excited about seeing again. Right. Ryan Johnson has already crashed the airplane. It ain't going to fly again. But uh, my metaphor runs out here. You know, mm-hmm. the, the stewardess can still almost, deliver the, some snacks. Yeah, but the way that the fan service worked slash did not work in Rise of Skywalker was just, it was all the wrong things. Right. Yeah. And then with Mandalorian, we care about the characters. We've set up a situation where we're not actually just pushing the nostalgia button. We don't need Luke in this show. Right. It could be Ahsoka. It could be anyone. What we want is for a, we, what we've set up is we need a Duis Ex Machina to make this story 
work. It, it really doesn't matter. You know, Admiral whoever could come out of the clouds and blow up the bad guys in his spaceship. And that would be the yeah. story beat. Any Jedi could show up that you weren't suspecting. Plo Koon could come back. Like, it just doesn't matter. Because what we care about is already in that, on the bridge of the ship. Right. And, and we've set up, somebody's going to come and they're going to take away Baby Yoda and it's going to be sad. And that's the beat we're playing. And that's the story we're telling. The story that we're telling in Ghostbusters Afterlife is a coming-of-age story. Will these kids figure out how to be Ghostbusters? And so to then be like, yeah, no, not really, but here's some old guys that you remember, it's, it's not the same thing. We haven't actually built a vehicle that delivers, that deposits Bill Murray and company at the end of our story in a way that makes emotional sense. And so you actually resent them. I resented them. And I don't think it's because I'm grumpy. I think it's because I like good stories. And the proper way to end this story is Finn Wolfhard mans up, McKenna Grace figures that out with her science, you know. Uh, the proper way to end this story is Egon Spangler somehow influences things from beyond. But Peter Venkman just doesn't have anything to do with this story. It doesn't matter how many phone calls you have with Dan Eckroyd. He's just not part of the story. And Bill Murray obviously didn't want to do more than a cameo. And so... And he didn't even want lines. He wanted to ad-lib. Right. And, and Apparently. And so you can either find a clever way to write that in, which I think there probably is, but it has to somehow lean into Venkman just doesn't care. Like, he actually really doesn't care. Like, let's let's cut to Venkman in the tropics. You know, I mean, that's... The, right. Let's actually have him not show up at the end. I mean, that's the kind of subversion that the real Ghostbusters would do. But no, Peter Venkman's our hero. He's the star of Ghostbusters. No, he's not. Peter Venkman was never a hero. He's, he's a cynical jerk played by Bill Murray. That's what we want to see. <sighs> uh, Except he was the hero in Ghostbusters 2. He was the hero in Ghostbusters 2. I think love was the real hero, though. All the love that New Yorkers had for each other that stopped this emotion slime mm -hmm. or something like that. Well, once you start singing Old Lang Syne, I mean, slime's going to start to melt away. I was just remarking Keep to my singing. wife the other day. That that is true. Once you start singing "Old Lang Syne," the slime melts away. Guys, do you have any more thoughts on this thoroughly dispiriting, ha, piece of crap movie? Who you gonna call back? Neo for the Matrix Resurrections. High hopes. That movie's gonna rule. It's gonna slap. I'm looking forward to it. Right. I hate the cynicism of this movie. I hate the fact that wokeism denies us basic story beats. I hate lazy nostalgia bait. I hate Bill Murray being in a movie that he doesn't want to be in. I love Bill Murray being in a movie he wants to be in. I really like the steel-eating ghost. You liked Muncher? Like Muncher? He's my favorite character. Uh -huh. I think yeah. I like podcast. <laughs> podcast had an arc. I mean, his arc was he made a podcast. It was cute. Bill Dan Aykroyd listened to podcasts, podcasts, and he thought it picked up around the 46th episode. It was cute. <laughs> that was like the setup payoff. Remember when we had those in movies? Yeah. Yeah. It, it just... Even that felt so stupid and lame at that moment. It, it did. I, I agree. But you could see how if you were vibing with the movie, that would have been a fun little moment. Mm -hmm. By the way, what a cringe boomer thing to make podcasts be named podcast. And like, maybe it's just that we do podcasts and we know that not mo most podcasts aren't like the idea that everyone has of, from Serial of like a ace reporter walking around with a microphone or whatever and asking people to do takes and stuff. But what a lame, like, get over yourself, boomer. You don't understand podcasts. And maybe this would have been cool and 
interesting like 10 years ago mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the thing that he would do is hand her the his entire catalog on a USB drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so, what the heck? yeah. Like, what year were you guys born? What's the thing that people say to boomers? What's like the catchphrase? Like, okay, boomer. Yeah, okay, boomer. This movie <laughs> had a number of okay, boomer <laughs> moments. It's really silly. Yeah. So and, silly. And, and no onion head, which is a national tragedy. And uh, although Ben liked Muncher, he ate metal. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I liked Ecto 1. I like that action scene. The, the Muncher action scene was pretty fun. That set piece was fun. But the whole set piece where we're randomly going to have Finn Wolfhard walk to the barn in the middle of the night to part, uncover Ecto-1 when the light goes out that we inserted just for the trailer. Man, so much of that crap in this whole movie. You don't even remember that scene, do you? Yeah, vaguely, now that you mentioned There's that. this whole scene where for no reason whatsoever... It's the middle of the night, and we cut to Finn Wolfhard walking out to the barn, turning on the light, lifting up the cover on the thing, and then the light going out. Yeah. Just like, what? This movie is such garbage. It's 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 pretty garbage. McKenna Grace, I, I hope she has a good career. She's, she's going to have a spectacular career she's unless got a lot she of goes off some kind of weird sexual rails. Yeah, which having her play an androgynous little Harold Ramis clone is probably not the the best way to get her on good sexual rails, but I cannot deny that she was very charming in this movie. She's cute, talented. Yeah. How old is she? 12, I think. 12-ish. Yeah, yeah. So she's got like critical years to get through if she's going to, but I mean, Finn Wolfhard's done it pretty well. Yeah. You're going to have to transition to adulthood and get out of these Stranger Things roles. Yeah, but- stop playing 80s nostalgia people. What a terrible, cynical, thoroughly despicable. I want—I mean, I just want to say one of the worst movies we've covered on this podcast. Probably the. Have we covered anything worse? I can't recall anything. I mean, I the top of my head. I didn't love Tenet, but at least it Never was it was it. ambitious. I didn't love Black Widow, but it was Never sort of it. harmless compared to hmm. this. Man, I'm sure we've probably done a worse movie. I can't imagine what it would be. Yeah, Dune. <laughs> <laughs> bold words <laughs> this is more cynical than black widow yeah black widow is pretty look bad up our catalog real quick let me pull out my usb drive oh yeah yeah, yeah. pull out your usb yeah. drive and i will plug it into my windows windows uh, the, pc the, the since expl- it's the only place it has explanation for that was that there was like no signal in town or something Right? I think it was built into the plot, Jake. Mm. I think it was a very careful point. And yeah, he managed to get that show published such that Dan Aykroyd could listen to it in New York City. Oops. Well. Knowing. Knowing might be up there. uh, Knowing the Nicolas Cage movie that's a cinematic masterpiece that we all loved more (laughs) than any movie that we've reviewed. I like Knowing a lot. Uh, I do not. The Tomorrow War? Uh, definitely. Oh, okay, that's yeah. that's the, in the running. The Tomorrow War's way up there. Oh, Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty four. In the Heights. In the Heights. Yeah, these are all terrible movies. Black Widow's pretty terrible. Yeah, Black Widow's just kind of bland, terrible. Though. That's right. Wonder it's Woman, eighty four. Yeah. Black, Black Widow doesn't really inspire the Crystal Skull hatred. hatred. Yeah. No. In the Heights has some catchy stuff. It's kind of it's terrible, but it's it's so annoying. It, it's but it's kind of pretty sometimes. It's got, it's got some ambition, I guess, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I, I want to narrow it down to, from what Jake said so far, Wonder Woman 1984. Pocahontas. <laughs> Tomorrow War. Yeah, ugh, Pocahontas is bad, but 
That doesn't belong in this. Category. No, it doesn't belong in the list. Men in Black International. I I have no memory of that movie, but I think I kind of liked it. I thought it, I think I thought it was kind of cute. I don't know. Okay, well, it certainly didn't leave as bad a taste in my mouth as no, this movie. It so. left no taste in mine. I defy. I think at one time it has Thor, and he picks up a hammer, and it's funny because he plays Thor. I, I, he throws it at somebody, and it bounces off of him, or something like that. I I, I don't know that I even would have known there was a Men in Black International if you hadn't just reminded me. Like that movie left so little <laughs> of an impression. I, I, I'm starting to recall it. It's got <laughs> Liam Neeson in a small role, right? Like he's the like old, he's like kind the, of the Tommy the, Lee Jones figure. He, he, no, he's like the rip torn character, I think. Yes. And then, yeah, it's just like you know what two characters really worked in a recent blockbuster movie known as Thor Ragnarok: Chris Hemsworth and uh, Tessa Thompson. Tessa Thompson. Tessa Thompson. Mm-hmm. Let's cast them in the new Men in Black. Yeah, I don't remember it that well, but I think Wonder Woman 1984. It's probably the worst movie we've done. It's probably worse than Ghostbusters. And it's bad on every level. It's bad on feminism. It's bad on, yeah. Messaging. On a moral level. Craft. Every possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bad on every moral level. Bad on every craft level. The action scenes stink. The there's, there, there's, there's, there's nothing to enjoy. She runs around in her underwear. She fights Chester Cheetah. And the Mandalorian's son really loves him, even though he really did a number on the world with his... It, wish machine or whatever yes all right so yeah this is second only to the travesty yeah you mean the miniseries <laughs> you mean the david lynch movie no no i i mean because those are both great yeah right that, i mean the denny villanueva yes or villanueva or however you say his name yeah well that movie stinks well you know what i'm just gonna gonna say that of those three movies I Dude's the one you'd re- least want to watch again? I think so. There's a lot less ethnic warbling in Ghostbusters Afterlife. I probably yep. would watch Dune again, although I don't know. It's a, just a depressing prospect. I don't want to have to watch any of them. I, I think Wonder uh, Woman I might want to watch think, the least. Just I don't think I would rewatch Dune before I saw Dune 2. I don't, I'd go see Dune 2, but I, I don't think I'm going to rewatch that movie. I'm, I'm not either, but we were talking about the lesser of three. That just reminded me of Master and Commander, which is a much better movie than any of those. Boy, you know, I'd rather watch Ghostbusters Afterlife than either one of those two. I, I would too. So I guess this they, can't this can't be the worst movie we've ever watched. Then it's not. It's certainly a lot shorter than Dune, and there's a lot less ethnic warbling. Oh, you know what? I also else I did like. Well, you know what? Successfully pushed my nostalgia button. What? Even though it was completely cheap and lame, the way they did it was. It was just really nice to hear an 80s style. And they were just repeating cues from the old movie. But it was nice to hear a score, like a, a, an 80s style orchestral score in a movie. They I, used it very temperately. Yeah. I felt like. I, I Yes, I liked the score. I marked that. And then yeah. I forgot about it. Well, it just made me score. wish like we had scores with themes. And, you know, it's like, do-da-do-do-do. They're doing something funny now. It's the funny music. Do, 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 yep. do. We've got the funny music and we've got the something scary is and weird is happening music. Yeah, the and we've got something kinda. heroic is happening. Yep. And then we've got the grandiose, you know, light coming out of the sky music. And yeah. yeah. The one, one thing that I actually, one beat that both, both Ghostbusters movies did was the way that they would like use like pop music during like their monster scenes and stuff like mm. that. And I, I missed that. Like, you know, that's weird signs 
song in the original Ghostbusters when you've got like the moons. Oh yeah, I love that's one of my favorite scenes. I love that. Yeah, signs. You know, like that whole like eighties vibe, weird like. And then we're seeing all this stuff happen. The taxi driver and the, yeah. also the famous bad scene from Ghostbusters is in that montage, I think. But yeah, no, that's, yeah. This movie needed a nice pop montage of new monsters. Let's not just do a guy that looks exactly like the taxi driver. Yeah, let's not. I mean, I think there was a one-eyed monster that reminded me of something from the real Ghostbusters. I don't know if that was a like a who you going to call back or what? I think that's what we're going to call the cameos. Who you want to, who you're going to call back. I love it. Yeah. Well, folks, I accidentally made a bunch of spirit puns and Jake said, who you going to call back? Was it our greatest podcast of all time? I'm thinking so. Do you want like, who's like someone, do you want Brandon to show up? Cause he's, you remember him from podcasts that you used to like. And so even though he's 90 years old and has nothing to offer to this podcast, you want Brandon to show up and say something into the microphone. Even though he didn't see the movie and hasn't something to offer or something to offer, nothing to offer. Is that what you want? It would be Ghost Brandon showing up. We'd have to bust him. Yeah, that's true. Would you like it if me and Jake had a giant fight and stopped working together and then Jake died like 30 years later and then I made a bunch of podcasts about how Jake was my best friend and his ghost really liked me? How'd you feel about that, folks? And we paid Ben a bunch of money to come and say, I'm here. Yeah, make it do it. And we told him he could have a post-credits scene. Where he's actually the one who made it and is going to be the one kicking off our new Ghostbusters franchise. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you dropped the metaphor there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, the post-credits scenes and that lame Sigourney Weaver cameo with Bill Murray. It was so cute. Well, again, it just feels like the original spirit of Ghostbusters is not, oh boy, I hope Bill Murray ends up with Sigourney Weaver. It's, oh, this horn dog really wants to end up with Sigourney Weaver because she's cute. It's not like, oh, I feel so, it just warms the cockles of my heart. Like they made sure to show that she has a wedding ring. Like Vankman and Sigourney Weaver got together. Yay. They made it. But also, nobody cares. <sighs> nobody cares. I'll tell you who people do care about. It's our patron award winner of genius. What do we call this thing? Awesomeness, I think. <laughs> I don't know how to do my own shtick. I'm like Bill Murray. I don't remember how to do my own shtick anymore. Movies folder. There it is. There it is. It's the PCAA. The Presbyterian Church of America. America? Nope. The Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness. And I'll tell you who deserves this. It's Seth. Seth. Seth B.E. Seth B.E.? Yep, that's how he's listed here. And Ben, why do you think Seth deserves to be a patron choice award of awesomeness? Well, because he's like a, a jump scare patron. He just he jumps out and surprises you with his awesome patronage. Mm-hmm. And it's it's frightening. Yeah. But it's but it's something you really appreciate after it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seth, you just got the greatest shout out of any of our podcasts. I hope you know that. You scare us with how much we love you. Mm-hmm. You know what the other interesting thing about Ghostbusters that baffles me? The just, it's just Bill Murray's lines actually aren't funny in and of themselves. They're just kind of like all just like something spooky's happening, and I'm not reacting the way a normal person would. I mean, but but they're funny because he's Bill Murray. It's just the magic of Bill Murray. He doesn't need material. It's it's just interesting to me. Bill Murray. Well, we'll litigate him. He slimed him. me. Yeah. Like, like, it's not funny when 
a normal person says he slimes me, but when Bill Murray says it, it is funny. And I don't dispute that, by the way. I just, Bill Murray is an interesting fella. <laughs> some people are just likable and just funny, and Bill Murray is one of them. I don't know. We'll have to do some more Bill Murray movies. He's fun to talk about. Okay, uh, until next time. Uh, something weird, and it don't look good. Who are you going to call? Harold Ramis's ghost coming write a script. <laughs>